Welcome. Thanks for joining. I have a couple of important updates for regular listeners, so I encourage you to stick around for a minute or two as this message has changed. As usual, if you're new to Imposters Anonymous and haven't listened to the very brief intro to the podcast, I encourage you to pause and do so now. It's technically the first episode and provides some helpful context about the nature and aims of this project. For newcomers, I think this primer is pretty invaluable, especially considering how this podcast differs from most. Moving on to the new, there's been some developments in how I intend for this project to exist in the world. As some of you already know, I've elected not to extend this project to any social media platforms as I continue to present uniquely severe and confounding barriers to communicating effectively and objectively. The jury is more than out on the dangers of the double-edged sword that is social media, and though I could spend hours on this topic, and maybe will at some point, I'll save everyone the headache and simply say I've concluded that it's best for me to keep my distance altogether, even if only in an attempt to prioritize my mental health. That being said, social media remains the most effective way to promote a podcast, or virtually anything for that matter. Considering that I would like this podcast to grow and reach as broad an audience as possible, the decision to abstain may prove to be foolish. But even so, it's the path I've decided to take. That being said, I believe I've found a suitable alternative which will allow for this project to grow and expand its collaborative potential without resorting to an ad-based model. I've started an Imposters Anonymous substack, which will in time feature commentary on each episode, my supplemental writing and thoughts, and maybe most notably a blend of anonymously submitted art, opinions, and various offerings from fellow members of the Imposters Anonymous community. This can be found at impostersanonymous.substack.com, and there's a link in the show notes as well. Subscribing will sign you up for an ongoing newsletter and give you access to the primary content, which is, to be clear, totally free if you're unsure about whether or not you'd like to fully support this project or don't feel like it's financially feasible for you. I'd like to keep all of my content optionally free for as long as I can, but if you do derive meaningful value from Imposters Anonymous and have the means to support it, I ask that you earnestly consider doing so for the cost of a decent cup of coffee a month. The ultimate aim of this project is to create a space where individuals feel compelled to overcome their insecurities and inhibitions entangled with their identity so that they can more truthfully share themselves with the world. And I hope that resonates with enough people that I can garner the necessary support to continue to be able to make this happen, in lieu of growing costs and time requirements. Of course, I'd love to be able to spend the better part of my days engrossed in this project, and continue to deliver higher quality, more thought-provoking content to my audience. And in time, I'd even like to be able to pay out the brave imposters who submit their work. But as I've said before, this project will only go as far as the audience takes it. And that's quite exciting, while also a bit terrifying. As a final note on this front, I know that due to the ubiquitous influence and spread of social media, YouTube, and Google, we've all grown accustomed to receiving the majority of our daily content for free. Though recent developments like The Social Dilemma are starting to raise the societal awareness of the hidden cost built into a business model where the perceived customers are in fact the product, we're still left with a media landscape that isn't conducive to electively supporting the strain of content that reflects the sort of world we'd like to live in. That being said, most of us are totally on board with opting into Spotify or Netflix for the ad-free value they bring to our lives, regardless of how we feel about the aims of these organizations or the opportunity to actually be a stakeholder in the content they produce. And to be honest, I think it's quite the bargain considering what these companies offer. I simply ask that if the nature of this project compels you, and you derive meaningful value from these conversations, you consider subscribing and contributing to the project, regardless of whether or not you choose to support financially. I believe we all have hidden projects, recordings, notebook doodles, opinions, poems, and all things of the sort 
and for every reason from a bit of shyness to utter self-hatred, we've talked ourselves out of sharing them with the world. In short, I'd be honored to help you take that leap. No strings attached. Your perspective is valuable. I truly believe that. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks for giving this a shot. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Alexander, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Brandon. Happy to be here. Yeah. How are you feeling? Feeling good. I uh, must say I'm a little jealous. Okay. Um, all my friends this week have been telling me about all the um, snowstorms in New York. Oh, wow. And I uh, really wish we had some, but uh, <laughs> sad. <laughs> yeah. That's that's one of the unfortunate things about about living here is no snowstorms. Well, I guess uh, we had a we had a snow a couple of weeks ago. It was about yeah, an inch. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it didn't even last until I got off work. That's actually another thing is I was thinking it's really sad for kids mm. because historically, right, it snows, school's canceled, they play outside. Right. Now it snows and school's not canceled. Mm. That's tough. <laughs> yeah, so I it's sad for me and it's it's sad for the kids. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I saw that on like local news and stuff where it was like, there were still all of those listings about closings and, and cancellations and such, but I was like, is that, is this relevant? Like, is this, oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. I don't think it changes anything for, and I guess there's some schools that are to some degree in person. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't really keep tabs on it per se, but I think some are in, in some places at least. Yeah. It's crazy. So my sister teaches in Vietnam. Oh, okay. And Vietnam, they have almost no cases. But to have no cases, they have to be very careful. So if there's an outbreak in the north, mm -hmm. hundreds of miles away, they shut down the south also. The whole country shuts down oh, until wow. they have it you know, contained. Mm -hmm. So every, every once in a while, my sister would just not go to work for like a month. And then uh, they'll go back. So, I mean, the good thing is pretty much nobody has COVID. Pretty much nobody has died. Mm -hmm. um, the yeah. bad thing is because of that and other countries take it less seriously whenever they come in. And they all shut down again. Mm. So it's, yeah, I mean that's that's tough. I mean it, it seems worth it. It's yeah, yeah, to have yeah. No one, uh, no one dying and such. But I guess that's a that's a whole other issue. That's a that's a great launching off point. Um, but yeah, gl glad to hear you're you're feeling well. Um, do you feel like that's that's pretty consistent? You, you generally is that your most common temperament mm. or do you feel like that varies i probably would say it varies um i don't know the, the the last year has been stressful for me not because of covid but mostly because i just took the last exam of the cfa oh okay it's just so much work so mm. it's it's basically 300 hours of studying oh okay three exams mm. And the first two have below 50% pass rates. The third one's about that. And you only can take it every six months. It used to be every year. So it's like one day. Right. If you mess up. You mess up. And it's 
it's a lot of waiting. It's a, and it, and it costs a decent amount of money too. It's it's like over a thousand dollars, and you know each time you take the test. Um, so I took the last one in December, and I find out next week. Oh wow! Okay, it two, it's on the seventeenth. Um, so how you feeling about that? I'm pretty nervous because I don't think I did the well. It was really hard. Um, uh, but I don't know. I passed the first two on the first try. Okay. So hopefully, so in theory, those are harder. Yeah, I I don't know. Third one's different. You have to write, uh, hmm. whereas the other ones are just multiple choice. Oh, gotcha. I feel like, at least for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it was like middle school mm-hmm. was all written, and then high school and college went to multiple choice, mm. and I kind of forgot about the written part about writing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I think. Like it's, it's written, not typed, mm. like actual writing. Yeah. <laughs> actual <laughs> words and, and such. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was always that kind of weird, uh, not even necessarily an exception, but I, I guess I went to a school that really emphasized cursive handwriting mm-hmm. and that was like a course and it was something that I always kind of enjoyed and excelled at. So I... I guess maybe fosters it more so. And I still like write in cursive if given the opportunity or if I'm writing anything formally, which to be fair, isn't often, but in in a lot of ways growing up, I was kind of like, this is kind of useless. I don't know if this is ever going to be helpful. And then I remember when I took the SAT, (laughs) you have to (laughs) write that, I don't know, some sort of pledge or something. Yeah. Acknowledgement or something like that. And it's in cursive. And so I was like, feeling good that day because i had that that box to check and i feel like a lot of the people around me were like what the fuck like, yep, are you yep. serious a lot of people struggle with this that i don't even why would i need to do this um but yeah writing physically is not something i guess i take notes at work in a notebook of sorts so there's that but that's all kind of shorthand and more just referential and, and not like long form writing yeah. per se well, so that's, that's, that's interesting. Would you, if you have like, I assume, yeah, when you have kids, cause I assume, mm. I think pretty sure you guys want kids, right? Oh, I mean, it's, it's definitely up in the air. <laughs> up honestly. in the air? Okay. Uh, it's, uh, well, the question it's would be too like, early to know, would but... you want them to know how to do oh, cursive? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. So you think there is value? Yeah. Uh, okay. At least for the SAT. Yeah. <laughs> At least for the SAT. I think even just for like writing uh, a letter or mm. like signing a card every now and then, I feel like that it just feels right. It feels nice to to get something that it, maybe it seems kind of old timey or archaic, but I, I feel like it's a helpful skill to have that isn't, if you learn young, it's not like it's terribly hard, but it's just not, it's not super relevant anymore. And I get that, but I think it's a good one to have in your back pocket. Um, but, you know. I think at this point, I don't know if it's being taught in schools. I don't know. Yeah, I don't if know. It's, Probably, so, but I don't know. It, I mean, it, it definitely does stand out. There was a, a guy who was interviewing at my company, and after his interview, he wrote handwritten cards mm. and sent them to us. So we got them oh, from wow. the front desk. Mm. So this is pre-COVID. But, yeah. <laughs> but we got them, and it was, I mean, it was just definitely memorable. Like we didn't forget him. Right. So it it was, it was pretty interesting. I feel like there's kind of a a renaissance on that front, like from a marketing perspective. I don't know if you see a lot of that, but I feel like more often uh, I'm starting to get mail where it's like, it's handwritten, it's hand signed, like addressed by hand and stuff. So I get it. I'm like, 
who is this? Like, who is this person who's writing me? It has to be something very personal. And then it's just from like <laughs> Leith Volkswagen. Okay. And, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and they're just like, uh, <laughs> hope you're doing well. If you, you know, it's, it's that nothing would actually, important. I think that would work on me. I mean, it's, it's a nice touch. Yeah. It's always kind of a surprise. Cause I see like the handwritten address and I'm like, it's kind of exciting in a way. I think someone like an old friend has reached out to me or something. And then it's just, kind of marketing and i'm like ah but i i I appreciate the sentiment i'm sure the employees are very i'm sure they don't love having to sit there and do that for all of their customers but i think the the little things matter enough that they would i don't think they'd be doing it if it wasn't yeah returning some value agreed yeah especially with i feel like a lot of people are under the impression that it's just about hitting your numbers Mm mm-hmm and I mean, some of the, I don't I don't know how much you use LinkedIn. I, I know you've used a little bit for, for a little bit, but I get these posts and they these people just give me these generic. They send me generic, oh, right. and then they say they they repeat and they repeat, and mm-hmm. it's just like try. How about you look at my profile and just say something about it? Like try to be at least a little personable. Right. It's I think it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's clear when it's. A template. It's yeah, clear yeah, when it's a yeah. script and they've just kind of inserted your name. And I think everyone has a pretty good bullshit meter for that at <laughs> yeah. this point where it's just yeah. like, you just tune it out, you don't read it. But if it seems real, I, I try to give people some attention at the yeah, time of yeah. day, but so much of it, even at my place of work, when we receive calls and stuff where it's just like, it's cold calls and you can tell they're reading off a script and you don't want to just like explicitly be an asshole, but it's when you try to say things to someone and they like clearly cannot diverge from the script, like you're, you're trying to engage them on a different level and they're just staying with it. You're just like, all right, I'm going to hang up on you now. Okay. So, so you just reminded me of, of what I was saying earlier. So, um, not trying to be an asshole. Somebody calls you. So (laughs) I, I, um, I had listened to your episode, uh, No Woman, mm-hmm. and in there, kind of the gist was saying no is okay. Yeah. It can make your life easier. That's fair. And um, people are scared to do it, but if you do it, you'll probably end up feeling better or at least getting your life you know, more on track. Mm-hmm. So I listened to that episode, and literally the next day, somebody texts me and asks me basically if I can use my somebody at my company as a, as a network piece. Mm. And like, I didn't really want to, like I I've talked to this guy probably twice in the last year. Mm. I don't really want to be using my relationships with people. I'm not talking to that often. Right. And I was weak. (laughs) I I, I started talking about how I don't really have know him that well. And like, I I just avoided it Mm. when I really should have just said, honestly, no, (laughs) like i mean it was yeah i thought it was uh it's (laughs) it's incredibly hard and not to just rehash that entire podcast but it's incredibly hard just to say no to things especially for me where i don't necessarily struggle too much with leaning towards no yeah yeah but just saying no and not feeling like i have to explain myself it's incredibly hard thing to do and in you know to your example you you want to be able to help people out in general, but at the same time, how much are you really helping them if they don't deserve it? Yeah, or if yeah. you don't even, 
you don't have enough trust in them or like a real connection with them to be able to vouch for them that no one really wins in the long oh. run. <laughs> you got me another one. Oh, so just because you said it so well, I had a friend ask me to um, be a, uh, like a job reference mm-hmm. and I, I was happy to. I liked the guy a lot, but then they actually called me Oh yeah. and I've never worked with him. Mm. I also haven't taken a class with him. So they called me and I realized... I don't have anything to say. <laughs> like he's a nice guy. Bad, yeah. I'm great friends with him. But then I was like, oh wow, I actually yeah. can't help here. He's really fun to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, it's like, you know, you know, how does he, you know, deal with stress at work? I don't know. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely important to, yeah, even for their sake, is to make sure you're only helping people when you're actually helping them. Right. It's, <laughs> there's definitely some some real some real value to the honesty is the best policy because it, it sometimes it feels like it starts to break down but i think in the long run it typically doesn't mm-hmm. and yeah. even it's it's typically this kind of short-term fix or this short-term uncomfortability that you're trying to avoid and why we lie so regularly and so easily on little things but there's definitely an argument that in the long term you should the truth is going to set you free and will ultimately benefit everyone involved more so but much easier said than done. Um, but one thing I did want to jump back to that I just realized I provided no context on. You said you were studying for the CFA. Yeah. Not sure everyone even knows what that yes, is per se. Yes, that's true. We, well, uh, I should have. I should have. Yeah. So basically, um, it is a series of tests which basically shows you are proficient in security analysis. Okay. Um, so a more common way, which people probably be more familiar with, is you get an MBA. Hmm. Uh, so you go back, you know, you go to grad school, you get an MBA, and then you're more marketable to companies because hmm. they they sort of understand that you know a certain level um, in finance. Because undergraduate finance is, at least at most schools, it's not um, it's not enough to show you actually know what you're talking about. Hmm. Like you can get finance degree pretty easily. I thought finance personally at my school was pretty easy. Um, and there were a lot of people I would not want to work with me <laughs> sure. that I studied with. Um, and I mean, I didn't go to the best school, but you know, decent school, well, I guess you would say, <laughs> but you know, like it's, it was good, good enough where, um, you know, we, we get a lot of good, you know, um, work, you know, future workers out of, out of, um, the school, but basically the CFA is, is a, is a high standard, Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of as a benchmark, like I don't know anybody that has one that I think is not intelligent, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of nice. There's a lot of things where people can slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to slip through something that takes 300 hours of studying right. three times. There's a lot of gatekeeping there for yeah. sure. Yeah. There's a monetary kind of get rid of some people, mm-hmm. time, and then difficulty, uh, which really is all three. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, yeah, with college, you know, a, a I mean, I don't think I ever studied more than two weeks for a single exam, mm. right? Yeah, I certainly and, didn't. <laughs> and, and then this is one exam, and it's it's. I mean, I so I started June first, mm. um, and basically two hours every single day through the exam, mm. and then I took a whole week off to study for the exam. Like it's it's intense. Yeah. Um. But okay. It's, yeah. It's, I mean that. <laughs> I think that that pretty much sums it up. I mean, yeah, granted, yeah. I. You even told me some things there that I didn't know yeah, yeah. about it per se, but um, 
yeah, I figured it was just worth rehashing what exactly it was for for those who who weren't aware since since we're kind of just diving in on on that front. Um, but yeah, I guess on that note, now that we're that finance is is in the ether, mm-hmm. um, what the fuck is going on, man? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I know that's that's obviously broad, so I'll I'll focus it in a little bit, but. Um, Actually, maybe I won't. Yeah. Uh, maybe <laughs> I'll I'll let you just answer that. I don't. Is, there's there's so many things in that space right now that, um, what really is what's going on? I yeah yeah I will say it is absolute pandemonium out there. It mm-hmm. it is it is not normal. Um, I, I wrote a post a little while back on this, and basically I said, if somebody told you that we had a virus. You know, that took over the world, shut the world down, mm-hmm. travel dropped 90 plus percent in the second quarter. Mm-hmm. Oil went negative, right? There was there was a time oh, there wow, where oil okay. went below zero dollars. Mm-hmm. So as an explanation. Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> literally below zero. So what happened is somebody would pay you to take oil from them. They would literally pay you like $50 for a barrel so that you could take it. So mm. they would take, they would give you their barrel and 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 they would pay you. Hmm. It was what's the what's the rationale there? It, it was just it um, just taking up it's space. Because it's oil's expensive to to hold on to, and basically contract issues where people sometimes don't realize that when you buy a oil's future, mm-hmm. the the oil actually gets delivered. Hmm. And sometimes retail investors will get confused. There's always funny stories about people who do futures with like cows. And then like five cows will show up at their house and they're like, what just happened? (laughs) So, um, but um, yeah, so oil went negative. Um, You know, we had an election that wasn't even decided really for a while. And then probably a fifth of our country still doesn't think it was decided. Say more (laughs) probably, but Uh yeah, maybe um, at this point, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, maybe like 40% that think it's questionable, Mm -hmm. but that's maybe like, I mean, it's you're right. It's very difficult, <laughs> very difficult to say. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, a lot of things happened, and the market outperformed the average yearly return. So, if you go back a normal year, mm-hmm. we did better this year than the average year. So, what is that disconnect between real life mm-hmm. and the stock market? It, it's absolutely crazy. And the easiest way to explain it probably would be monetary policy. Um, so, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was there was a lot, you know, with the Fed printing money, which everybody's like, okay, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did sometimes a little math on that. If, if you remember the twelve hundred dollars stimulus check we all got, oh, right? Yeah. It, I don't know if it sounds good or bad, but if you look at what percent of it of the actual money spent was on that, it was like ten percent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like they're not they're not giving it half to us and half to companies, you know, right, it's yeah, 10 no, it's to us very small. and 90, 90 to companies, <laughs> yeah. right? It's not even, um, so they, so they basically are helping, um, these companies they're you know, by just throwing money at them, basically like mm-hmm. loans and sometimes they don't even pay them back. And, um, I mean, it's, it, it's intense. And then by lowering interest rates to zero, mm-hmm. which they did, basically it makes you, so you can borrow money for nothing. Mm-hmm. So you leverage up your company, um, and it makes it so valuation doesn't matter anymore. So companies, so no, you know, normally you want your company to make a profit, right? 
because if you're as a shareholder, technically you're worth the future value of your cash flows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll try not to get too, too into the nuance here, but but basically it, the lower interest rates are, the less it matters how much money you make now versus in the future. Right. And the higher, the more it matters how much you make now. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're low or basic, well, zero makes it so that who cares if Tesla makes money in 20 years right. you know, versus now? It doesn't matter. Tesla mm-hmm. is worth more than Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Tesla is 800 billion dollars that's twice walmart mm. and they they don't they're not even yeah, the leader even in their industry close to making profit right i mean <laughs> they actually do make a slight profit now, oh, okay which is why they've gained so much valuation this year but but their profit is like i think they have a, a couple hundred pe so basically it would take them a few hundred years mm-hmm. to for the profit to equal the value of their company right and we all know time is is money so money now is better than money later. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I loaned you or if you loaned me $1,000 and I gave you a $2 return per year, you would not like that loan. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and, it's not worth it. And, and that's basically what they're being valued at right now. So it's um, it's wild. And then, of course, that's just valuation. I mm-hmm. assume what you more were interested in was the GameStop madness. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, yes. And I think that's maybe what is most... Uh, pressing i think this the what you're getting into and, and lots of other things have have been these kind of ongoing you know mystifying forces but the past few weeks or i guess month or so has been particularly surprising or just yeah as you said it's just chaotic and kind of hard to square for the average individual i feel like and i've had a few conversations with people with different levels of understanding in this space but to me it still doesn't really make sense (laughs) Um, and uh yeah i'm just curious with someone or or, you know from your perspective how exactly uh, maybe more so my my real question is ultimately are are hedge funds going to come out on Mm. top in all of this because i think generally speaking i'm very skeptical that they won't and I don't really have a justification for that. Um, but also maybe just if you could provide a little context about what actually happened for those maybe who aren't as tuned into it. Yeah, short interest. Uh, sh- um, short answer is your instinct. Instinct is correct. Um, hedge funds will come out on top. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, a few hedge funds actually rode up the GameStop madness and made money off of it. Okay. So they followed the retail investor. Um, but secondly, so hedge fund industry is over a trillion dollars. I think it's $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. GameStop at its peak, I think was $20 billion. So, I mean, the max the hedge funds could have lost there was, I don't know, $15 billion. Mm-hmm. We'll say something like that. Um, now, a lot of other companies did go up as well. Um, so... Even at the worst, it would be a couple percent off the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one hedge fund that lost a lot, Melvin Capital, and, and they were reported to have lost 53% in January. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So, because, so the problem is with, with, with GameStop, for example, and um, so with GameStop, they were a dying company, mm-hmm. right? They had year-over-year declining revenue, right. which is a real, real red flag. Yeah. No right? one cares about physical 
yeah, gaming yeah. stores it's, anymore. It's, it's a, irrelevant. It's a bad business. Um, and pretty much any company that's having year over year declining revenue, everybody wants to stay away from. Mm-hmm. So it's not getting like new attractive shareholders. You know, it's just slowly dying mm-hmm. really over the last couple of years. Um, so yeah, a bunch of hedge funds short it <laughs> and it works. It goes down. Mm-hmm. So more sh- hedge funds jump on and it goes down more because when you short a stock, what you're actually doing is you're selling a share and agreeing to buy it back later. Mm. So the act of shorting actually pushes the stock down further. Right. Which is one reason why these um, retail investors you know, from Wall Street Bets yeah. were so mad because they thought the price was artificially low mm-hmm. because all these sell orders were in which weren't real sell orders. It wasn't like shareholders were choosing to sell. It was somebody else coming in and selling a share, right? Mm. So it, it it is a little bit of manipulation. I, I sort of get their point. Um, but anyway, so so you know they they shorted it until it got to like three dollars a share mm-hmm. in uh, April, right? At, right, you know, midst of COVID, nobody's going to GameStop. Right. It's it's crashing. Um, then it started to go up a little bit, right? There was a recovery. This monetary policy I'm talking about where people start thinking, well, maybe they won't make money this year, but maybe in five years they'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a boost in valuation there. Um, and then they get um, a, a successful company, Chewy. Do you know Chewy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so the founder of Chewy uh, went on their board. Oh, okay. Um, so basically everybody got excited and thought that maybe um, he would make the company more valuable. Mm-hmm. And there's this one Reddit investor um, – Deep fucking value is his name. Oh, okay. Uh, and the fucking is in there? It okay. is. Yeah. So, so he, the, the, side note, this is what the problem with this whole thing is, is this affected my clients. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't show them screenshots. I can't quote this stuff because <laughs> it is just, I mean, just horrible language. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when people are anonymous, they take advantage of it. Oh, yeah. Um, That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, yeah, I will say that the, the whole idea about this is fantastic. I mean, I even told you, like, I probably don't want to do this. And they're like, just just listen to the intro. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I was I was convinced. So uh, congrats to you for the idea. Um, Thank you. But anyway, so so it's starting to go up now, and, and this guy puts out basically it's called like a due diligence, and he basically puts out to the Wall Street bets, mm-hmm. uh, so this community of retail investors, why he thinks GameStop is undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, so he basically says it's a good buy, and he puts proof. He's like, I just bought, I think it was fifty thousand dollars worth of GameStop, mm-hmm. um, which for a company like that, and the typical person in that. Um, in that chat is is a lot of money, mm-hmm. and everybody laughed at him. It was like this is a terrible company. It's it's it, actually so. This was actually before the Chewy guy. Okay? Oh, okay, so this was it had come back a little bit, but it was still a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he put it out, and everybody's laughing at him, saying this is a terrible idea. But he keeps posting it, mm-hmm. and and like I said, it started to go up with um the, the policy and just kind of the the recovery. Of the market starts going up, mm-hmm. and he starts to make money, and he keeps posting, and people start seeing it like. Hmm, Mm-hmm. Maybe I should try this. And then the Chewy guy gets on the board mm-hmm. and the stock goes up a lot. Right. So now he's made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And and now he's bought even more. He's bought options and stock. And at this point, he has $500,000 invested. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he really put yeah, in a lot. In. Um, and he's still working at this point. Um, and But yeah, so he has $500,000 and he, he's posting a lot. And the stock is going up and up. And he's, he's up a good amount. And then somebody writes a different post which basically says 
hey guys, GameStop has over 100% of its share shorted, which is very confusing. Yeah. So for every 100 shares, it was like over 130 of them were short. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, how does that work? Like, how can be there be more shares shorted? Um, and, and basically, the process of shorting is a bit complicated, but you basically borrow shares. Okay. So you can borrow them several times. You borrow it, and then somebody borrows it from you. Okay. And then somebody borrows it from them. Um, I don't know if you know fractional banking, but that's usually the easiest way for me to just get people to understand it, like the idea of it. Okay. Basically, you give a dollar to the bank. Mm-hmm. The bank loans it out. Now there's $2, but there was only $1. So right. why is there $2 now? How can they loan out a dollar? Which when I look at my bank account, it says there's a dollar there, mm-hmm. but they gave it away. So now there's $2 in the system, right. but there's really only $1. So basically some you know right. iteration of that yeah. happened in GameStop where you can loan it out and they loan it out and it can be a kind of a triangle mm-hmm. or, or not, it can be more than a triangle. Theoretically, you could have over, you know, over 200, you could be many hundreds of percent short. Um, but that typically never happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case it did. And what I said was when you short a stock, you're forced to sell it, or you sell it. Right. So it pushes the stock right. down. So when you cover your short, which means you get out of your short position, mm-hmm. the stock goes up. Right. So this guy on wall street bets basically says, I think if we all buy this stock, all these people are going to be forced to leave. So he posts that and the stock goes up. Mm-hmm. And everybody starts realizing that if they buy the stock, then um, all the shorts will be forced to leave because they'll start losing more and more money, right? The higher the stock goes up when you're short, the more money you lose. So they all went, they all did that and it just went absolutely crazy, mm-hmm. which, you know, at the end, you know, you probably you're talking about it with your friends at work, right? It was just absolute craziness. Yeah. Went from $3 to four eighty mm-hmm. at its top. Um, and I will give it to them. In that instance, they won. So they As act- far as the retail investors. In- in- okay. Like they actually, that was genius. Um, that whole plan was genius. And uh, unfortunately, it kind of got smeared by what happened with Robinhood. Yeah. Right, where they decided to restrict trading, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't just Robinhood, correct? It was kind of everyone in that similar space. Yeah, essentially said, "We're making this decision for you because it's too volatile." Is that yeah? Is that accurate? Or so that's what they said, and uh, I hated how this was done. Um, I think they made themselves look terrible. So. Yeah, but basically on I forgot what day it was, but we'll you know the 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 market opens. Uh, well, actually, it was I guess before the open, and Robinhood says we're not accepting buy orders anymore, mm-hmm. but they still accepted sell orders. So what mm. happens to a supply and demand curve when the demand is gone? It crashes, right? right. There, there's nobody to buy the supply, so. It's it it was it, it the stock crashed from 480 to like 130 in like 30 minutes. I mean it it, oh, it was shit. just absolute crash. Now it did recover some, um, and since then has fallen. But at the time it was a big deal because this hedge fund Melvin Capital was down 53. percent mm-hmm. So if it had gone up another 100, percent they would have had zero. They would have been bankrupt. 
Right. And for some reason, that was everybody's goal. <laughs> I'm not totally sure why everybody hates these hedge funds so much, but they wanted to make this hedge fund go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it didn't happen because of Robin Hood basically stopping it. And you said, mm-hmm. so you made a good point. It wasn't just them, which makes me less likely think it was nefarious. Mm-hmm. Because from an optic standpoint, it looks horrible because- the reason why it's confusing is because it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but Robinhood's biggest um, customer mm-hmm. is Citadel. Okay. And Citadel is a hedge fund. And uh-huh. Citadel bailed out Melvin Capital when Melvin Capital lost 53%. So they literally gave, like, they infused money into the hedge fund. So they uh-huh. gave them $2.5 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Citadel and a few other, but C- Citadel is the name that matters. So Citadel is Robin Hood's biggest customer. They bail out Melvin. Mm-hmm. If Melvin goes up, Melvin, sorry, if GameStop goes up, Melvin gets hurt, which hurts Citadel. So it kind of looks like Citadel called up, uh, Robin Hood was right. like, can you please make this <laughs> stop going up? Yeah. Um, that's pretty fucked. Yeah, it is <laughs> fucked. And, and, and a lot of things came here. We were like, what does Citadel being Robinhood's biggest customer mean? Like, like, what does that even mean? What Robinhood does, which is crazy, and I, I, I can't believe I didn't know this. They sell your data, like straight Facebook style. Oh, they <laughs> like, all do, man. That's yeah, it's that's the best business in town. It is the best business in town. So literally, what they do is they sell Citadel all the orders that um, these retail investors are doing, and they can just take them apart because most people are pretty stupid on how mm-hmm. they buy and sell things. So Citadel will just take advantage of like, um, basically just, so it's not, it's not like illegal, but it's just sort of, no. it's just kind of <laughs> like grimy. Oh, Because totally. they're telling you what they're going to, they, they're showing you what they're going to do. So you can kind of take advantage of it. And, and as proof, they've paid hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's mm-hmm. not like this is worth nothing. They're paying literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. Yeah, I mean it's a <laughs> it's a window inside people's brains and their habits and their what is more valuable than their spending and investing habits. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, as as we just kind of said, it's it's the best business in town and everybody does it. You know, Google Maps. That's that's why Google Maps exists is because your location data is incredibly valuable. Yep. Where you're going on a day to day basis. Every single product Google's ever made has been a play to get better consumer data. They didn't, it's not like they cared about there being a better way for people to get around. It was, how do we, how do we capture this data? Um, and pretty much every app that exists, not every, but the large majority of the successful ones are doing that in some form. And, and to some people, I hear the argument like, who really cares? It's, I'm not doing anything bad. I hate that argument. Uh, I mean, I I don't (laughs) think it's a strong one, but I feel like it's maybe an understandable one because there's a certain degree of... I think it's short-term thinking. What can I do? And if every company is monitoring me all the time, is it really worth a fight? And it's not necessarily how I feel, but I get it to some extent that people want to kind of throw their hands up in the air and just be like, Hey, I, I I don't know. I can't necessarily afford to go down this rabbit hole. Like, are you going to stop using Google? Are you going to stop having an iPhone? Are you going to stop? Like, how far does it go? How much are you going to pull back? You're going to get off all social media. You're going to 
not use the but you're going to use apple maps apple maps is garbage like it's yeah, yeah. i tried i literally did because this is something you know that, why yeah you know why it's garbage uh because they don't track your data as yeah. much right <laughs> they don't have that yeah, it's, apple it's, maps, you're right apple it, created that as yeah. an alternative to google maps to to be that I mean, they've recently started leaning into it in some of their ads. I don't know if you've seen it where they're kind of like yeah, they have. leaning in on the privacy aspect and where it's basically like, you know, do all the Apple shit because we don't sell your data. We keep it. You know, we use it for ourselves, but we don't necessarily we, we won't sell it. Um, and that's valuable. I, I do appreciate that. But it's an inferior product in every way. And everybody knows it. And so at a certain point, it's like if every company that is providing value to your life that all of your competitors are using and all your peers are using to pull back from all of those just so that people can have your data, it's yeah. it's a, it's a, it it's a commitment. It is and tough. I haven't made that one. I try in small ways and, you know, I tried using DuckDuckGo, you know, like yeah, I, yeah, I try yeah. to do the things that make sense, but... um. And I guess anyone listening probably knows, like I'm not really on social media and I, I try, but it's still, I have an iPhone. I know that thing's listening to me all the time. I fucking know it. Like it yeah, just yeah, is. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is a little bit, a little bit of a tangent on the, on the privacy and uh, data collection, data mining side of things, but it's, it's tough to know how to, yes. to navigate. And at a certain point, it's like, does it matter? that you and I are here talking with this awareness that it's happening, if we're not doing anything about it or changing our habits because of it, like, is it actually a net negative thing for us to know and to talk about it and to care about it when it's nothing's changing? Where if you were just like, Hey man, I don't give a shit. I don't want to know. Would your life be better? You know, I I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about the proposal where they say all these websites, they have a monthly fee. Mm-hmm. And you waive the fee if they take your data. That's yeah. what I've heard. I, I kind of like it where it's like, you know, you, you use Facebook and it's free, but, mm-hmm. or, or the other way around, you could choose which one's the default, but, or it's like eight bucks a month. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> you're kind of <laughs> preaching to the choir on that yeah. one. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the subscription model and something I'm kind of experimenting with this project is, I, I I certainly, it has always resonated with me, especially with people in the content space that that take that stance or that are willing to say, okay, we're not going to advertise, advertise to you. We're not going to take your data. We're not going to sell it. And you're just going to have to pay uh, a small amount on a monthly basis to get this value out of whatever this is. And I think at least giving people that opportunity would make sense. Like, I think that's the only way out for Facebook or for yeah. Twitter or for any of these companies that are doing it on a high level, even Google, YouTube, for any of these companies to be able to escape their current business model, which I don't think they're going to because it's just working so fucking yeah. well. Um, I think if enough people had a problem with it, I think they'd have to respond. But I just don't think most people would be interested in using Facebook if it was $15 no, a month. No, that's the problem is, yeah. I mean, I don't think most people would, but I do like what you say where they should be given the chance. Right. To be able <laughs> to opt in and say, hey, if you don't want your data sold to the highest bidder, yeah. you can pay a monthly fee just like you do for 
for Netflix or Spotify or Disney Plus or whatever that they're they're offering you this different experience and sure they're still collecting data but they're at least not just selling it to whoever the fuck wants it and like Netflix is a great example where clearly Netflix is doing some extraordinary things and how they curate content to the individual but at the same time there's no ads yep. and it's you you at least know where it's going you can say okay Netflix, you yeah. you understand me better than my best friends, but it's not some you know uh, erectile dysfunction company yeah, down the yeah, street yeah, yeah. who is who is getting their hands on everyone's like intimate information and uh, trying to manipulate them with it. But yeah, I mean, I I I'm hoping that that is the future, and I've seen a lot of, I guess, smaller, more independent companies try to move towards that model where it's just like hey just just pay for it you're paying for it already it's yeah. just in a different way um but i i think until i think we've just grown so accustomed to things and i guess no one can see my air quotes being free yeah that we we just kind of had this renaissance of of content and technology in which we had these incredibly powerful and valuable tools of connection and research that just were at our fingertips instantly and it was all just free and amazing and for a while and not everyone but a lot of people myself included it was just kind of this wonderful thing that you didn't think too much about you were just like man the world's at our fingertips we've got google we've got youtube you can learn anything you can find any information because the business model wasn't totally clear and now that it is or at least largely clear it's it's pretty fucking uncomfortable. It's it's obviously causing a lot of problems. And I think we could solve a lot of them if if it did cost twenty dollars a month to yeah. use Google. No, yeah. But it, I, yeah. I don't I'm sure Google would make less money and I don't think they're interested in that. I think they'd have to make it something probably something that was a barrier like it would have to be like a hundred dollars a month to to use google or something like that which in some ways i don't know i'd probably still do it (laughs) and maybe that's me being extreme about it but um at least i could know i could go on google and get uh you know non-biased information yeah uh, or at least i'd hope (laughs) but um I'm, i'm hopeful that more companies will move in that direction i don't know if the giants will i i I hope they do too, but it's, yeah, you're right. People love free. It's difficult. Yeah. It's, it's just so not difficult. really free. It's yeah. just, well, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah. But yeah, people, I guess, don't view it. The, the, the directly level. financial yeah. free. And it's worked, like you said, it's worked so well. I mean, Facebook and Google are two of the top 10 largest it's companies. Amazing. I mean, they, they've they, done something incredible. Paid both. Well, again, air quotes, <laughs> I've paid both of them $0, right? But right. yet I'm worth apparently a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> yeah no there's no idea how much we're actually worth uh behind closed doors but it's it's tough but um yeah i actually wanted to jump back to something that you said which is mm-hmm. a little bit divergent from where we've gone since but you said that people tend to have a lot of animosity towards hedge funds mm. oh, and okay. you don't yeah. know why yeah okay and i've you... got to push back on that okay a little okay bit. well okay push back I think uh, I know what you're going to say, but, but go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, mostly what I'm saying is, would you be interested in 
in reevaluating that at all? Like, do you really feel like you don't understand why people hate hedge funds? Well, or do you feel like they're not valid? Yeah, I probably, I probably criticisms. The second one more. Okay. Um, because I can maybe so give, give me, you give what, me a criticism. Okay, give me so a criticism. I think maybe the common. So, so look, just actually, just just before you do, I just want to point out that hedge funds have ex- are the short selling seems bad, mm-hmm. but it has exposed things such as like Enron, mm-hmm. right, Valiant, s- certain companies that were not what they seemed to be, mm-hmm. and if you couldn't make money on the downside, people might not have spent time to try to figure out that they were frauds. So just keep that in mind. But okay. Yeah, okay. yeah no, I mean, there's always a silver lining. But yeah, I, I would say a common criticism of hedge funds is that it is a, let's just say a mechanism for the ultra wealthy to continue to accrue and gain wealth at a disproportionate rate to the rest of the population or to kind of silo wealth into a particular community. And granted, I get that that's a little bit that's a little bit broad because it's not like it, it's not necessarily an explicit aim. And so, if if hedge funds are just the mechanism, it's not like they are bad in and of themselves. It's how people are using them, and I maybe don't know enough to know so much about the barriers to entry per se. And I think maybe that might be. Part of the critique is like, okay, this is something no, that's only you, you're, accessible. You're right. They, they to, do have high barriers of entry, right? For I, sure. That the average individual, it's just kind of like, it's an engine for the rich getting richer because once you have enough, once you have enough to go over that barrier, you can kind of hit light speed. As I'm sure you understand to some extent, as far as how wealth tracks, that once yeah. you get to a certain point, if you're able to invest properly, you're you're in a good spot and that's only going to increase. But those who don't have enough may never get there. And I think that's, I think it points to wealth inequality as a problem as a whole and something that seems to kind of support that. Yeah. So I agree with what your gist was. Hmm. Um, I just don't think hedge funds is necessarily the culprit. So I do think stocks kind of create inequality because mm-hmm. it, it the rich do get richer. I mean, everybody sees these charts. If you invest $10,000 now, right. you know, and what if you don't have $10,000 to invest, right? Yeah. And then somebody has 10 million, right? So I, I agree with that. But I mean, if you look at the 100 richest people in the world, maybe one of them is a hedge fund owner. Mm-hmm. It's It's not, I mean, Zuckerberg, Bezos, Gates, none of these guys are in hedge funds, right? They, is there money? No. Hmm. Hedge funds tend to be smaller, actually. Hmm. Uh, hedge funds tend to be usually like a few billion dollars. There's a few that are large, but most of those um, manage like endowments for universities, which hmm. is a whole another. So issue. who's managing their money then? Well, their founders, so that they have it all in their company, right? Hmm. So okay. they, you know, like Jeff Bezos would have it all in Amazon. Hmm. So um, I would say the issue more is you could argue just like the stock market in general as in like versus the hedge funds. I think the reason why hedge funds have a the worst name to your point is it only does let rich people access. Mm-hmm. So you have to make a certain amount of money or have a certain amount in liquid assets, which most people don't have. I, I mean, it's like 250K a year. Like mm-hmm. most people don't make 250,000 a year. Yeah, <laughs> not even close. Uh, so um, that's why it has this kind of 
um, you know, different reputation. And hedge funds tend to be very few employees, a lot of money. So yeah, there's not much trickle down economics there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, yeah, the rich, it's only rich people, the people who give the money and the people who work. Right. So it's to that, to that I, I agree. But uh, again, the richest people in the world tend to be tech founders or-, or Sure. You know, and I, I mean, to push back on that a little bit, I don't know how much that is a part of the critique that, okay, sure, we could take the top 100, but- you know that's that's the one percent of the one percent of the one percent, but I think a lot of the problem is still at least that people are attempting to point to is the one percent or or even the one percent of the one percent, which it's not it's not these top one hundred people it's it's just the the gap in and of itself in how it continues to grow large, and that these hedge funds are as I said before, just kind of an engine for that. And it's it's a little bit tricky because I know what you're saying that, okay, the market, you could, someone could do this as an individual. It's not like you need a hedge fund. You could manage your own money. And if you know what you're doing, you could achieve similar ends because of how the market works. So it's a, it's a system that's in place that is, is open to benefiting those who have more period i i would just like to dispel a potential um something that, that you, may, you may not know so hedge okay. funds don't actually make more money than normal investing okay they, they, so if you look if you add up all the hedge funds returns mm-hmm. they're not better than the stock market mm. so they're not better if you buy the s p 500 your return on average will be the same the reason why rich people love them so much is because they're hedge funds. So theoretically, a lot of them, there are very many different types, but a lot of them, a typical long, short hedge fund, so they buy, they go long and they go short, Mm -hmm. is supposed to be uncorrelated returns. So Mm -hmm. it's it's good for your portfolio if the market's crashing and the money you have with your hedge fund is still going up. So Mm -hmm. it's just supposed to be more consistent returns or just uncorrelated returns rather than better returns. Um, so it's not necessarily that you're going to get richer. It's more okay. that you'll. It's easier to preserve your wealth if you have different strategies versus all the money in, let's say, the S and P 500. Um, so my only point is, I, I think it. I think if a normal person invests in the S and P 500, mm-hmm. they shouldn't be upset that their money's not in a hedge fund. Um, and, and and supposedly, <laughs> the reason why you can't invest in hedge funds is to protect yourself because hedge funds they do some weird stuff. And there's mm-hmm. and and there's famous stories about them crashing and burning. All your money goes to zero. Right. And if you invest in a mutual fund, so or a, or mm-hmm. an ETF, right. that's pretty much impossible. So it, it's really more like consumer protection. The reason why you can't invest in these funds, I would say, let the consumer learn the hard way. Mm-hmm. So I would say they shouldn't have those restrictions. But it's not. People who who are pretty knowledgeable about it usually wouldn't say it's like just like the rich trying to keep the rich rich. Mm-hmm. It's more it is there is a reason for it. it. You could argue whether it's good or not, but it's not. I think most people wouldn't say it's actually just to try to keep the rich rich. Mm. So yeah, I mean, and to be fair, I don't know that that is even necessarily an explicit aim, or that that has to be a part of the critique that that's the intent. But I think you know something essentially is what it does. Um, but I do take your point that, or well, at least 
I can acknowledge that it's not something I was aware of. And it certainly begs the question, I mean, why? I know you kind of spoke to it, but to me, it doesn't seem like enough that why, why invest in a hedge fund in the first place? I mean, I get, okay, it's theoretically lower risk, but. No, that's huge. Actually, people investing, that's like massive. Uncorrelated returns is worth people pay so much for that. Why do you think people buy gold? Gold theoretically has a return of zero, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's. Or like real return, right? There's no reason why gold right. in a thousand years should be worth anything. And yet gold's worth over $10 trillion. <laughs> why do people own gold? Yeah, It's an uncorrelated I mean, asset. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I take your point on that. I guess what I'm saying is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to go back to your example about the S&P 500, mm -hmm. in the long term, isn't that always going to essentially correct for itself? It's it has so far. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess that's fair. Anything could happen. The only reason why I say that, but okay, yeah. If you're willing to be patient and you have all of this money that you're sitting on, why not just oh. play that game and let it level out over time if your returns are going to be better? You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. As opposed to a hedge fund where it's it's more secure, but again, I I I. I push back a little bit it's more secure depends on the hedge fund they, they can be wildly different some mm -hmm. of them you might lose 90 percent of your money it, it yeah. right so yeah. it just seems i don't <laughs> but know some, some of them do seems, great yeah. i mean you also have i mean rich people do they want to make eight percent a year or do they want to have the chance to make a ton right so, some hedge funds do fantastic uh mm -hmm. there was one hedge fund that um somebody bought of uh, i don't know if you ever heard of bill ackman Mm, yeah. Uh, you have yeah. So he he bought like a basically a, a he basically shorted the market um, during COVID, and mm. he made like three billion dollars on like ten million dollar investment. So oh, wow. it was absurd. I mean, hundred x his money basically mm -hmm. in a month. <laughs> um, so rich people like the idea of that. And I, I I don't know. To to me, the issue is not the hedge fund. To me, is the issue is is the the bigger issue. And people attack the hedge fund, but it's just the growing inequality mm -hmm. that stocks has created. Because right. since 2000, the financial crisis, well, 2008, 2007, mm -hmm. you know, average wages have not really gone up. Right. But if you invest in the stock market, your money's doubled. Mm -hmm. So basically, rich people are twice as rich as they used to be, and poor people are exactly the same. Right. So to me, that it, it's more they're an easy target because everybody's rich there. Mm -hmm. And if you attack a mutual fund, then you're like attacking like your 401k. So it doesn't really make sense. Right. Uh, whereas I think the bigger issue is that the way to be rich is to own assets. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to own assets if you don't have money to start with or if you don't have a great job. Right. So it, it just leaves people behind. Mm -hmm. um, people would think that Especially during COVID, because who were the people who lost their jobs, right? It wasn't yeah. it wasn't the rich people. Mm -hmm. um, it was almost always people who worked in, you know, restaurants and mm -hmm. the service industry. I, I would say most people who lost their jobs were making under a hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely, would be my guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people <laughs> took some pay cuts, but um, as far as people actually losing their jobs or being in difficult situations, it. It was just another, I mean, I think pretty much any stress on the system is, is going to further that gap. And I, I think that's been made clear by the past year that the the people at the bottom tend to take the brunt of it uh, yeah. whenever something goes down. 
um, on a national, even global scale. But since we're kind of explicitly on wealth inequality now, I'm curious, and maybe you're kind of already speaking to it to some extent, but are there any potential solutions <laughs> to it as a prob uh, as a problem that that makes sense to you? I know it's something that gets talked about a lot, and I've, I've even talked about it on this show a good amount. Is kind of this this glaring problem, arguably the biggest problem of our time. It's getting worse. It got a lot worse during 2020. Mm -hmm. Everybody's seen the numbers, seen how these this group of people just killed it yeah, while, yeah. while everyone else was, not everyone else, but while those who needed money the most struggled. And as you just put it, it's, it's not just that the rich people are just getting richer. It's that the people who are poor aren't really advancing. Yeah, yeah. And if we could, if we could even just correct for that, if we could raise the floor and, improve people people's situation at the bottom you could argue that we don't need to cut out the ceiling right yeah i, that, I think that's, that would be the idea um but it's it's not exactly clear how we get there uh so i'm curious and whether or not it has to do with any sort of potential regulation or, or change of the market because i know you kind of spoke to that as something that has its issues but I'm just curious if there's anything yeah. on that front that you feel like is is practical or that that could really be implemented and that would make a difference on this front. Obviously, you're not going to snap your fingers and, and solve this problem, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah. First of all, I will say it is a problem. Um, some people won't even say it is a problem. I mean, I, I forgot exactly what it is, but I think it's 1.3 or 1.4% of the country owns half of the wealth, mm. um, which I think any reasonable person would say is, is, is not right. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so solutions, because it's very difficult because people, you know, they don't want their hard work to be quote, unquote, taken away from them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Europe would be sort of the staple of more um, evenness through the society, mm -hmm. but they do give something up. <laughs> Right, so they get, yeah. they basically give up innovation. Mm -hmm. So um, a solution would be you raise um, capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. So the joke that Warren Buffett always makes is his secretary pays a higher tax rate than he does, mm -hmm. um, and that's because America is incentivized. Americans are incentivized to b start businesses, mm -hmm. so they're not taxed very much on their profits from businesses. Right which is good for your local startup, sure. but is it good for Apple, right? Is right. it good for a company that makes billions of dollars uh, every year um, that they're going to pay 15% on those taxes, uh, on the gains? Um, you could argue it could be higher. Now, if it was higher, if we, if we raised it dramatically, mm -hmm. companies would leave. Like it, It's naive to say they oh, wouldn't yeah. leave. For sure. Um, you can argue whether that's worth it or not. I mean, if you think about the vaccine, did you even think that we would be like, oh, Spain figured it out. We're going to get the vaccine for Spain. It was just assumed that we would figure it out, right? right? It was just assumed that we were going to figure it out and the rest of the world would use it. Like, Yeah, I mean, from a, a biomedical research perspective, we, we are certainly uh, 
I hope I'm not upsetting anyone by saying that, that we're in the, in the forefront in that sense. But, uh, but I would say everything. I mean, technology. We have Facebook. We have Google. We have the best phone. We have Apple. Um, I mean, most industries in terms of innovation were number one. And it's not number one because our citizens are the best. That would be kind of an arrogant thing to say. Mm-hmm. It's number one because they come here. Right. Elon Musk is South African, mm-hmm. right? It's you know the, a lot of these people aren't even American, but they come here because we have the best opportunity to build these businesses. So that's just a long-winded way of saying. It, I think that would that would sort of that would definitely cap the top, mm-hmm. um, but um, we would lose something. So it's sort of like you care about your people or do you care about your country? Sort of a kind of a, because it's sort of something China does, right? China is often criticized for not caring about their people at all, but you can see how in the last couple of decades they have grown oh, yeah. incredibly well. Mm-hmm. One of the things they do is they, I'm getting a little distracted, but this is just no, sort of fine. interesting. One of the things they do is they devalue their currency. Mm-hmm. So, Intentionally? Intentionally. And you're like, why would a country make its currency worth less? Americans are always afraid that the dollar is going to go down in value, not Mm -hmm. up. Well, if it goes down, the Chinese currency, then they can sell their products across the world Mm -hmm. and competition can't compete because they're artificially selling it for less. Mm -hmm. So it's good for business. The businesses can grow. It's bad for people because now whenever they buy anything anywhere else in the world, it's 10% more expensive or Mm -hmm. 20% more expensive. They travel. Everything's 20% more expensive than it should be. They literally should be richer than they are mm-hmm. uh, as citizens. Um, so there's some some win and some loss. I mean, I would say at this point, we probably should do something. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you don't, it will happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, societies don't accept to have a few people in control. There, There is eventually a rebellion. And... Yeah, the Wall Street bets fiasco in January was one. This last summer was clearly some anger. Yeah. Um, it's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, in two thousand eight, uh, what was it? Occupy Wall Street was one. Right. It, it's 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 not going away. Uh, but yeah, actual solutions are extremely difficult because raising taxes, I don't think would really work because people just cheat like crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean. Our tax rate for the top tax bracket, I think, is 35%. They don't pay 35%. No. The people who pay 35% are people who make like 300000 But mm-hmm. the people who make like $3 billion, they don't pay 35%, right? right. They have an accountant. Um, they figure yeah, it out. Yeah, their money's it, not here. Right? It, it's, it's so different. Um, I was in Singapore studying it, and it was funny because this teacher was saying, in Singapore, they don't have accountants hmm. because there's nothing to do. They have tax brackets. There's no tax breaks. You just pay. And their top tax bracket is like 15 or 20%, but they end up getting the same amount of money as we do because we have all these loopholes and stuff. But mm. again, it usually only applies to the really rich. So it's right. sort of, um, so I would say one thing I would try to do is really just eliminate these loopholes. And it's bad for some stuff because, you know, if you donate money, you know, you want it to help, you want to incentivize all these things that are good. Right. But I think that all these things are just getting taken advantage of too much where, mm less money is getting put into the system um, than could be if it was just mm-hmm. like if people actually were paying what you think they should. Just like basically thinking that Bill Gates should probably pay more than, you know, the your manager. Right. Right. Like as a percentage. Yeah. So it's, 
it, it seems so intuitive enough. Um, I think you point to something very valid, which is that at the end of the day, or at least from the American perspective, and I think to your previous point, it's something that America has done exceptionally well, is focused on incentives. Yeah. Because from an evolutionary perspective, that's that's kind of how this whole thing works, yeah. is that whatever we are all driven by incentives on many different levels and if you can pull the right strings and incentivize the right things people will do it people will always do it um and so whether it's making charitable donations tax deductible or uh, any sort of thing on that front there's a lot to be said at how well the u.s has figured that out in a lot of I think that is also kind of like the steel man argument for capitalism is you incentivize what people want and people will rise to the occasion. Uh, people will maximize their potential for whatever that's worth. And just to uh, piggyback off of your previous point as well, like I, I do agree and I think it's often lost a bit that at least in, in the past, few, I wouldn't say past few years, but particularly or maybe just increasingly so that we we do lose touch with what america does really well yeah and at the end of the day people do uh kind of as they say vote with their feet and people come here more than they go anywhere else and that and this is a whole other topic in and of itself that's, that's but what, yeah <laughs> you know the this is the number one place in the world for black and brown people to come and oh, that yeah, means yeah, yeah. something, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think sometimes we lose sight of that because of the problems that we have here, but people are still coming here because they think it's the best place on the planet to come for opportunity or for whatever we think that reason is there. They continue to come here far more than they go anywhere else, regardless of the problems that we have. So something is being done right. Yeah. And, um, it is very important not to lose sight of that. And there are, of course, going to be consequences if we make fundamental changes to our society. And as you kind of spoke to, you know, a capital gains tax, I think that's something that of all the solutions I've often seen put on the table, I think it's a compelling one, at least as opposed to a wealth tax. Um, but of course, people will leave, you know, larger companies will will adjust. Uh, and, and so I think at the same time, we do have to, it's kind of like the classic argument about something like climate change, or even just on a less controversial level, even though probably shouldn't be po pollution and oh, reducing yeah. that, that I think that's the best we, climate change argument is if you're trying to get, um, both people to agree with you. Mm -hmm. Don't use the word climate change once. Just talk about pollution because who wants pollution? Pollution is bad. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> it's, most, it's like, clearly right? a problem. It's an objective problem yeah. that we have, whether or not it is pointing to some sort of uh, larger long-term, you know, diabolical trend. Pollution is a huge problem uh, globally. Yeah, you and see it when you go. You can't argue places. about pollution. You just yeah. can't. Uh, we, we don't want to live in a, disgusting degrading society um because we just can't regulate our outputs so i guess just to 
get back to my point with something like pollution, you could argue the best way to deal with it is to incentivize the right business practices, uh, incentivize, you know, give tax breaks to companies who are, who go green or, you know, who are carbon neutral or whatever that companies will see that and say, Hey, we want to make more, we want tax breaks. We want to make more money. We'll do whatever you say, as long as you give us these breaks. So it's, it sometimes feels like a little bit of a, a dirty way to, to get to the end. But I, I do agree to some extent that we do have to find a way to properly incentivize these massive companies who are generating more wealth than we ever could have imagined could be generated. These huge tech companies that just, there's so much money that's being yeah. made and yeah, circulated. And it's not and distributed it's, even. Like. Not at all. Um so I think some sort of solution has to has to be made with that in mind that we have to find ways to work with these large companies and to incentivize what we want them to do and how we want them to be in the world because they will respond. You see how fucking mobile these companies yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When any, anything changes in the world on a dime, they're ready to to be in lockstep with what the world wants them to be because they know it's good for business. The companies are willing to pivot overnight if they feel like the tides have shifted, you know, even just from a social perspective, they'll get on board. They'll, they're open to being quote unquote manipulated. If we can find ways to, if we can settle on what we want them to do and find room within the system to, whether it's through tax breaks or, uh, even just the market itself, um, Okay. I, I I got one. What, what about what about attacking this from the other side? Mm-hmm. I heard this one time, which was sort of interesting, because um, it is extremely difficult. Uh, everybody tries to come up with different tax ways. You know, and they often backfire, or they just for some reason never get passed. Mm-hmm. Um, what about attacking it from the start? So I heard. So if you think about Social Security, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how much the average person gets paid out, but it's a decent amount of money. Yeah, it's significant. What if they took all of that, mm-hmm. they averaged it out. Let's say it's, I have no idea, but let's say it's 100000 mm-hmm. They took half and they gave it to every newborn child and they invested in the stock market. Hmm. And then, so you get less Social Security when you're, when you're older, mm-hmm. but you're still going to be paying, um, you'd still be paying into the system, but it's paying into the, the newborns um and you'll get like half now it'd be kind of hard to start this would you be would you have access to it would you not have access to it until you wouldn't have access until you retire so 60 like 59 Mm -hmm. and a half like the same restrictions as as retirement right Uh, or actually is it 65 whenever social security starts 65 i I guess so So, and i mean the power of compounding everybody has shown like that would do so well Mm -hmm. and and the reason why i know it sort of works is because norway does that nor norway has a fund called norgis it's basically a hedge fund, but for the country, mm. for the country. So um, it is worth like a trillion dollars. Yeah. And they have like 5 million people. So mm. the average person there has $200,000 in this fund, mm. each person. So what, what do they get out of that? They get free education, but it's not free. They just get this fund mm-hmm. and they get like, so I, I went to... Um, Right when I was in Singapore, these Norwegians 
were getting free money because the school in Nor- in Singapore was cheaper than than in Norway. So they literally got paid to go to school. Hmm. So this huge fund has a ton of money, and um, because they're getting money from this fund, not from Social Security, which is basically just take money from Paul and give to John, mm-hmm. you can put much less money in and get a lot more money out. Right. This whole compounding thing. So if it compounded zero, even if your family makes terrible decisions, even if you make terrible decisions, mm-hmm. by the time you're retired, you're going to have you know hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. in real terms, real dollars. Right. And I feel like it would just be, I, I, I don't see any downside. I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, I think conceptually it's definitely compelling and I haven't heard about this before. I think maybe the first thing that comes to mind is, I guess it it speaks to my limited understanding of how it actually works because I guess as opposed to social security, where is it something that in Norway, is it when they hit 65 that they have Uh, uh, access to it or is it, is it? Uh, kind of incremental access to it. I think it's it used for a, a decent amount time? of different things. Um, I'm not totally sure, but I know it's there. Like the, the like part of it is for each person. Okay. Used, and, and and by law, they're not allowed to pay out a certain amount from the fund, so mm-hmm. it literally can't go bankrupt. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's 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 designed very well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they've thought of plenty there. So I'm not even necessarily trying to say that I I think it couldn't work here, but I would be very curious as to how it, I guess, how it's paid out or what kind of access you have or um, because I think that would be one fundamental uh, challenge is, okay, let's just say the average American just had access to $200,000. Yeah, it should be. No, I, I agree. I think, but, but I think if you did it like you only can access money for education until you're 30 mm-hmm. and then- you know, maybe some medical, or but like if it's restricted to certain things until you retire, and then it can be anything. Okay, gotcha. I feel like that would just incentivize good, um, I don't know, just good behavior, and and it, I think it would get rid of a huge inequality thing because everybody kind of starts at the same spot. Whereas now, there's people who retire mm-hmm. if you worked hourly with nothing, right. and you can't literally retire. I mean, you, you work until you die. Yeah. This would make it pretty much impossible to have to work until you die. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a compelling idea. I think the Norwegians do a lot of <laughs> a lot of interesting things that that maybe wouldn't perfectly map map onto the American system, but at base, I I think it's interesting. I think it could be, I think it could be promising. I think one aspect of that that comes to mind that I've heard as a as an interesting just kind of observation is why is it really necessary to have social security for people past a certain income level mm. or wealth? Like, I agree, but I don't think it matters. I mean, what percent of people would be like 10%? Uh, but that's a lot of money. Is it? I mean, if you give everybody else 10% more, would that make the difference? I mean, maybe not. I don't know. It's like stimulus I, I think, checks. But okay. what if it was... Uh, what if it was a, a larger percentage? You know, what if it was? But actually, how thirty percent? I, mean, I mean, would you be okay with that if if your if your paycheck says Social Security every single time, and then you retire and you get none of it back? Uh, I mean, <laughs> if I was, I mean, and granted, that's that's a fair question, but I think if I was in the top thirty percent, I 
I'd probably be all right. I probably wouldn't be that upset about it because I, you know, I mean, I think we're pretty accustomed to, to paying taxes and, and being relatively okay with the fact that it's, it's not equally distributed. It's not like we're all yeah. equally benefiting from taxpayer dollars. I think we're, we're all kind of opting into this idea that others need it more than us. But uh, I, I could certainly see why that would be a point of contention, but it just seems a little bit silly that, and granted, I think when I bring it up to something like 30%, it becomes much more controversial, but at least for a certain percentage of the population that is sure perfectly yeah, yeah. well I mean, yeah. suited to retire, and then they're just still getting this check every month or whatever for the rest of their lives, despite not needing it at all, just, just seems wasteful. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I, yeah, if, if, if there was a bill that was top 1%, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that, but mm. for it to matter, right. It would have to be more and more. Right. <laughs> so. No, I mean, that's, that's a fair point. Um, but I, I think some sort of adaptation to social security will be necessary in time. For sure. And I think a lot of people think that potentially, let's just say people in our relative age bracket will never see it, um, which yeah. is, is obviously a big concern if that were to happen. And obviously people would be very upset for, you know, you pay into it all these years and then it essentially crashes or needs to be changed fundamentally. And then it was kind of like, sorry, you, <laughs> you tried, um, but things just changed. But kind of on that note, I do think, I think some version of, as we've spoken to, increasing the floor yeah. as as a means to closing the gap a bit. And I think some people would argue that that's not enough. And I don't know exactly where I stand on that. I haven't seen any particularly strong arguments uh, to the contrary, but I, I I think I can empathize with the sentiment that do we really, is it actually ethical for people to be as rich as they are for the Jeff Bezos of the world? You know, is that, should there be hard caps? Is it really like he's being continually motivated by the fact that he can be even richer than he is? Or is it kind of just this plateau at a certain point? I I don't know. I <laughs> I it's guess I'm not one of those yeah. people and I don't know if that's what continues to drive them and and the innovation they create or an Elon Musk. The pro- yeah, I, I will someone say the like problem, that yeah. is is it about money at that point? I I don't know. Um it certainly seems excessive. I think it's a fair <laughs> criticism to say that it is. I don't know if that's enough of an argument though. You know, in and of itself to just say that seems like too much money. No one should have that yeah, much money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it's not like they didn't, it's not like they took it and put it, you know, in their mattress. I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos is rich because he created a company with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of employees. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not like he hasn't created jobs. Now, of course, Amazon workers have had their whole other thing where, I don't know if you saw that video where they were talking mm-hmm. about unions. Oh no, I don't. Oh, it's terrible. They were basically saying, what do you do if you see somebody from a union? It's like, stay away. Like, it's creepy. They're <laughs> like, it, I mean, it is. So, yeah, there's, there's some problems. But um, I don't know. The problem is with when, when you're that rich, 
your money is not income, right? It's it's in mm. stock and off the time it's not even sold. So, I mean, do you literally just take away somebody part of somebody's company every year? Right. Yeah, I mean Maybe. that's tricky. Um, what would be your solution though for the bottom? The bottom. Um, because that's the biggest problem. I think, like you, we said earlier, if the bottom was all middle class. Then we all is can, it a problem? We, we can yeah, all we know. can all want to be Jeff mm. Bezos, but when you kind of feel like the money's not you know distributed everywhere, right? So yeah, so. I mean, I think some version of of increasing human capital and better e- equalizing or, or democratizing opportunity and resource, I feel like is incredibly important, and a lot of that, in my opinion, comes from access to education, mm. especially at a very early stage where i think some people maybe argue about okay let's make college free um which i think in principle seems like a nice idea i'm not against that per se i think it would be a little hard to pull off but um i think in principle would be a nice thing for an advanced society to have but i think it's far more important for that investment to be made early Mm, yeah and the differences in educational resources and just developmental resources I feel like is a huge part of the problem and it it certainly doesn't account for all of it I don't mean to be uh, simplistic in that regard but the place in which people I guess I've spoken to this a little bit I was lucky enough to go to what you might call a really good school growing up and it can be just such a huge advantage compared to what some people's educational experience was that I know where it's virtually useless. Yeah. You know, just depending on where you are, your school district, the variance is unbelievable that if you're in the right district or your parents have the money to send you to the right school, the sort of training development you're getting, the even just the connections that you're making, the people that you're around, the investment that your your teachers, your actual school is putting into you, the skills you're learning, all of these things are just further distancing you from those who have less. And I feel like it could make a big difference if we better standardized our education system. There's a lot of flaws there, but the degree of variance is just, it's simply too large. And between like a good school and a bad school. Right. Yeah. In, in in simple terms, yes. That you could be you could come out of high school essentially ready to pass any college course. And I know plenty of people who feel like their college or university experience was in ways easier yeah. than high school as opposed to someone who comes into college. Or <laughs> that includes me. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, that it or let's not even talk about college, that it doesn't even appear to be something that's on the table yeah. purely based on their educational environment growing up. And sure, a lot of that has to do with how issues with with school districts and housing problems within housing and segregation and gentrification and, and lots of other very complicated things that keep those who are generally in lower income areas out of the good schools. And it just continues to push, push these two groups farther and farther apart. Um, but that's a good point. I think, I think you hit on something there. I mean, 
when you tell people that, yeah, I mean, why is it that if you if you're in a poor neighborhood, you just go to a bad school? Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't seem how that that make yeah like you're already yeah, we behind just don't the eight invest ball. in the bad schools. Yeah, so. yeah, I, I, I that would be definitely a place where, um, you would think more funny would go. And, and I mean, in what else do you not like put money into what's going to grow? Mm-hmm. Right, like if you have a crop. You're not going to plant your bad seeds, right? Mm. Like, why is it that we pay teachers so much less? Why is it not incentivized? There's this joke. I don't know if you know. Uh, well, he's had a bad few uh, years, but Louis C.K. He has this uh, good. <laughs> yeah. He has this good joke where he's like, "Teachers are stupid." Mm. My sister's teachers. I love teachers, but <laughs> but she's like, "Teachers are stupid because they've been told their whole life that they're going to do a job that's people like it's unthankful." And you get paid shit mm-hmm. and they still do it. Right. So like who would do that? And some people <laughs> right. luckily We're do. Expecting these people to be saints essentially. Yeah. yeah. Some people do it that are good, but clearly a lot of people are lost to finance or, or medicine. Mm-hmm. Why aren't some of those geniuses being like, I'm going to be a teacher? Right. The incentive structures are wrong. And it's, it's something that I took a, developmental psychology class in university and um it's something that was really at the forefront of of the uh coursework there was just kind of how how much of a problem it is that all of our best minds are are being pulled away from education and it's it it really could be as simple as paying teachers more that if if K, if K through five teachers yeah. were making six figures, I think our society would dramatically change almost w- within a matter of a decade. Uh, yeah, um, 100%. But we're just not investing in the right places. And at the same time, it, you look at these quote unquote bad schools in these quote unquote bad areas Um there's all these feedback loops at play and it just gets worse and worse because no one wants to teach at these schools. It's already hard enough to find good teachers, um, especially at the lowest level because anyone who really wants to make a career out of teaching or, um, in academia, in academia, you, you know, you, you get your master's, you get your PhD and you, you get tenure at a university and sure you can make some good money doing that. But, that's not really where we. That's need. not where we're hurting. It's not. <laughs> yeah, we have the IVs. If you get we're to fine. that yeah. level, you're good. Um, in in kind of reductive terms, but at these early stages, it's so hard to find good teachers at that level. Um, my sister actually was one for a while at a charter school, and I, I think charter schools provide a little bit of a an outlet for individuals in these areas where it it seems like whatever just the public school in that area is, is the only option. And for parents who want to, you know, what's, what's, what's going on with chartered schools? Cause I feel like Republicans love charter schools and Democrats hate them. Uh, Why is that? Yeah. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's a, that's a huge, cause they seem good, right? Huge question. I I, I haven't Um, really figured out why they're, they're bad. No, I mean, that's, that's a fair question. I'll try (laughs) to give you the short version. Um, there's okay so one answer there is that and this is i'm not even necessarily taking either side here but one answer is that teachers unions and um 
other big players within education heavily fund the Democratic Party. Oh, okay. And the existence of charter schools, in theory, pulls students and resources away from public schools. And so naturally, it's something that there's some resistance to in that space because they receive a lot of funding from them. It doesn't benefit them. That makes sense. Um, and that is just at base kind of a lot of what politics and, is. And they and they fund the Democratic Party because they want to what, pay the teachers more, uh, supposedly. That's an aspect. <laughs> but to be fair, I, I can't speak to that in a, yeah, in yeah, a yeah. super intelligent way. And this is my very narrow understanding of this. Mm-hmm. That would probably be what uh, a conservative would say. Um, whether or not that's completely true, I don't know. Um, I think the other side of it would be that um, essentially it, it creates the idea maybe from a more liberal perspective is that it it doesn't necessarily solve the problem to have charter schools or school choice as the issue as framed, which just means that parents should have the opportunity to decide whether kids go to school that it in theory drives more inequality in segregation in schools because um really and and granted from what i've read it's not necessarily true Mm -hmm. but i think this is the argument uh and once again i might not be representing this totally well but that it 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 creates somewhat of an unhealthy environment in which, of course, some people are still having to stay in these public schools that are quote unquote bad. And so you lose your three good kids. It's making it worse (laughs) for them. And the students that have less are generally, or their parents are less invested in them or whatever, however you want to frame that. Um, Not that those things are correlated, but that someone is still going to these schools, someone is still teaching in these schools and these schools are becoming even worse Mm -hmm. because their more promising students are leaving them. And so it kind of creates this weird vacuum, which I think is a a fair criticism at the same time. As I led with, I think charter schools to me seem like a good thing and that giving parents the agency to be able to say i I want better for my kid i want to put him in a lottery to go to a charter school doesn't seem like anything particularly sinister to me and i think some of the criticism of it does suggest that there's kind of some string pulling behind the scenes that is trying to drive more inequality and segregation in schools through charter schools i don't know if i buy that Yeah, yeah um But it is one of those weird issues where in principle, it's surprising to know that when you first kind of learn about it, that it falls along party lines as it does. And that it is one of those things that for whatever, um, for whatever it's worth is relatively controversial within the black community because a lot of, um, a lot of black parents support charters charter schools and want better opportunities for their kids because of course in principle as an individual you if you were a parent and you were like this is where i have to send my kids to school like of course you want the opportunity to do that even 
without even necessarily considering like, okay, what does this do? How does this stress the system as a whole? Um, but all that to say, my sister taught in a charter school for a while. So it was an institution in which um, they were doing things differently than yeah. the the typical public education system, and they were able to provide a lot. And it was, you know, in an urban area where most of the most of the kids were um, black and Latino, and it was a really cool environment for her for a time. And, and I think she did a lot of good there. But also, at the, as we kind of spoke to, you're kind of expecting these people to be saints because they're having to do this thankless yeah, work you shouldn't, for not uh, much money. And they pretty much all end up moving on as mm. my sister did that That's it's, awful. it's a rewarding environment in some way, but in time you have these, you know, these Ivy league students who, you know, she was part of teach for America and who have a lot of promise and a lot of potential and capacity. And they spend time in these environments, but in time it's, they have bigger aims because there's a, there's this very narrow uh, path for them in a very, shallow ceiling um and that's that's unfortunate yeah i mean you could argue that drove my sister out of the united states i mean she gets pretty much an equivalent life or salary in vietnam but mm -hmm. vietnam's like so poor compared to here she mm -hmm. does well like teachers are given for, uh, as a comparison you know right. like the percentile in society it's so much higher there um and obviously vietnam is still poor but I mean, look at the growth these countries in, in Asia have had. I, I think a lot of it is just the way we view education. I mean, I went to a great high school. Mm -hmm. And even there, it's like the cool kids are football players and stuff. I Just the crazy example that was Singapore. I'm in Singapore. Mm -hmm. I take this test. And the teacher says, okay, uh, only one person in the class got above a 90. Jeremy, he got a 93. Mm -hmm. Everybody stands up and applauds. They stand mm -hmm. up. And applaud, and the girls go over him, to him and start talking to him. I'm like, "What is happening?" And he That's was cool. cool. Mm -hmm. He was the cool kid. And I'm like, "That would never happen here." Mm -hmm. um, so I think we ha unfortunately have a problem on both sides of that equation. Mm -hmm. I think the resources is bad, and it's not. I don't think everybody's incentivized to do well, or like mm -hmm. e even from like their friends or. Um, you know, so it, that makes it harder, especially if you're in a bad place to start. If your parents aren't pushing you, you're not going to get it from your peers. That's mm -hmm. tough. Yeah, I mean, it 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 touches on a, a even more of a sensitive issue than than the one I just tried to kind of yeah. tiptoe around. That often in these schools that have they already have fewer resources, they're already understaffed. Teachers are underappreciated, they're under-resourced, kids aren't motivated. But then from that sort of environment, you also get a certain, uh, let's just say, anti-intellectualism that comes yeah. out of it in which, as you said, it's not cool to do well in school. It I is, mean, none, none of the coolest people in my high school were top in their great class, right? It was... Sure. And you went to a, a pretty good, good school. Pretty, yeah, so... It's so it it just continues. It's just another one of those things that just gets worse the lower the general quality is of the school. That because there's no incentive to do well, it's not something that's upheld. It's not something that's valued. It honestly becomes kind of a joke or a negative thing. It's 
the the opposite incentives are in place where you almost you don't want to be perceived yeah. as a good student you don't want to be perceived as someone who cares because why would you fucking care in such a lackluster and and under like just underappreciated and uh under-resourced environment uh the ceiling just isn't particularly interesting and so even when there are sometimes really quote-unquote promising students or people who have a certain aptitude or a capacity they have this incentive to hide that or to not yeah, lean into terrible. that yeah and that just only drives a problem further um i really hope it's it's fixed there was something you know bill gates has spent billions and billions of dollars basically on two things like curing malaria in africa and fixing american education and he mm-hmm. basically was like i did a kick-ass job on malaria yeah, and I have great. failed education. Like <laughs> mm. it's so difficult. Uh, I, I don't yeah, know because we're spending tons of money. Yeah, it's on not it. like we don't. It's just wrong. I don't know. Mm. I, I, I really, I really hope we get that right because it, it's not going to get better. Like inequality is not going to get better if our schools, half our schools, you can't. I mean, there, there was a school near me where like um, you need a metal detector to get in. Like mm. that's not a learning environment, right? It's like right. That's a lot of schools. It, yeah, like but mm. it, but it's like. If you're in a situation where, yeah, like you said, teachers are scared to work there, they're not paid. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, you want your sister to stay there, right? Because, because the, the, I mean, I, you know, good students are going to come up with creative ideas to make their schools better, mm-hmm. right? So right. It's like, yeah, and there, I mean, it's you're not, you're not going to, no one's going to reach their potential in a school where you're actually concerned that you will be harmed <laughs> if you do well. Like that's, that's just, no yeah, one is yeah, going yeah. to reach no, their potential no. in that sort of an environment. And the fact that people who already are so disadvantaged from the start are also, that's where they're spending nine years of their lives. Um, or I mean, not even nine, but I guess 13 on the front end where they're spending most of their lives in those environments. And when you have other schools where, you know, kids are, learning about the stock market and they're, yeah, they're yeah. learning how to invest and they're learning all of these practical skills. They're, they're getting these very niche classes and they're learning multiple languages. And it's just, it's just pushing it even farther. So I know we've been on this one for a minute, but I do think that if we really do want to solve for wealth inequality, you know, and a lot of our other problems especially along the lines of uh, other, I guess, social disparities that we tend to care about, we do have to do something very serious on, on the education front. And I think that's the, the form of, I'll just say reparations that I would support is a dramatic funding of schools in, in underprivileged, you know, yeah. predominantly minority areas. I, I mean, I would be for that. For sure. I think that's, it's it's i think there would be bipartisan support or something because like that. because people who aren't aren't for that i hate the sh- the narrow narrow-minded thinking where people just think oh i don't want to pay the tax on it but mm-hmm. think about the other way if these people are going to school they're getting jobs you're not paying as much in welfare you're not paying as much in blah 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 right you could right. be selfish and actually want other people to succeed uh you're aware of sam harris right mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he has this whole thing where he talks about if you're rich, you should care about inequality 
because like it just right. creates it's... this like you can be selfish and still want mm-hmm. you know, underprivileged places to do better because it helps the whole country. Right. And if everybody's making more money, then your business will make more money. Like it, it's never good to have just thirty percent of the country that can barely you know, survive. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's coming to fruition in, in LA and in San yeah, Francisco I'm, and these yeah. places. People are just leaving because they're not, they haven't been able to create a society in which enough people are, are able to thrive in a reasonable way where it's just, it's being quote unquote overrun yeah. by homeless people who are just people who are at the bottom. And then you have some of the richest people in the world right next to them. And it's this crazy contrast, but you don't, those people don't want to live in a place where you're, you're seeing people trying to raise children in the streets. You don't know that nobody wins because that is the case. Um, There's, it's just good for society. Things that are pro-social are good for everyone. And regardless of how much wealth you have to that whole line of thinking, it's, you want to live in a society where the the floor is not as low as it is right now. Is there a is there a good reason why schools aren't like there's a budget and then they just pay it out like per person? Like why is it that it's based off your city? Like why isn't it federal and it's just like pretty much every school gets the same amount like mm-hmm. on a per person basis? Yeah. I mean, that's a very fair question. And then you can I, have I private I schools. Answer, I mean, but... I, I, I'm always for like if you're extremely rich you should be able to basically buy something better. But that would be a private school that you have to pay out of your pocket, mm-hmm. right? But a majority, let's say 90% of people would be going to roughly equivalent schools. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see why. It does seem so unfair mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, it's, it's honestly, <laughs> like, I, I really do wish I had a better answer to that. And there might be an obvious one for someone, and maybe I can get someone on who who understands these things a bit better. Honestly, maybe my sister, she, yeah, yeah, she, she probably does. You know, yeah. She majored in uh, education policy. So maybe that's something that, that we'll have to get to because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense as to why these disparities are so strong. And maybe it's, maybe it's not all public funding, you know, maybe it's because these schools in better areas are receiving. Yeah. It's based off housing. Donations or, or it's, it's housing. I'm pretty sure schools are paid right now based off, housing taxes mm. so that's why nicer yeah. because you know more expensive houses mm. you get better um but i don't know why that's the way it has to be I, maybe there's a good reason like you said i guess we don't we don't know but on the outside it just seems so unfair i mean the whole point is you want everybody to have a level fl- playing field and then if you work hard or you're smart good for you mm-hmm. but if you work hard and you're smart and you're still screwed <laughs> that, right. that's not a good it's, society it's not a good system uh, it, it seems like a lot of people are in that boat right now. Yeah. Um, but to make a little bit of a pivot here, because mm-hmm. of something, I guess we've we've talked around in a little bit or in a in a roundabout way. Um, I guess it it does relate back to the whole point of there just being these growing gaps in in society and certain people with access to certain resources are just kind of hitting light speed beyond others and then other people are kind of stuck in the dark. But I guess what I'm attempting to refer to is more about data and mm. that it seems that in a lot of ways, our society, our culture is becoming, or maybe not our culture per se, but uh, 
the world of those who make decisions mm. and who are in power or who pull the strings, things are more and more data-driven every day. And the the world of analytics is just continuing to grow. And it seems like these these high-level decisions that are being made are being more and more driven by data. But at the same time, we see this kind of trend of the common people, the average individual, having a good amount of resistance to that, but also at the same time, making the majority of their decisions based on, or at least motivated by emotion or storytelling or, or tribalism. And not that that's not trying to put the blame on anyone for that per se, but it seems as though it's driving this huge gap in which let's just say these huge tech companies have this very complicated and data-driven and nuanced understanding of their consumers, of us. And we're just kind of sitting around just letting them pull the strings because we're just kind of doing our thing and, and living as regular humans. And the amount of data, because we can't, we can't sit here and do a thousand focus groups or yeah run all of these programs and, and analyze all this information as individuals, but you get these groups that come together and they're able to build these super high fidelity models of what's going on and understand people's motivations and predictive models and, and stuff that you're probably a little bit more in tune with, but the average person can't really afford to think that way um, or even has resource or has access to that kind of resource. Um, so I'm just curious if what you make of, of these divergent trends or if it's something that uh, you feel like there's any way to remedy or if it seems like a problem at all to you. Yeah, I think the internet, what's so great about it is anybody can be great. But what we said earlier, like it's supposedly anybody. But I mean, out of the people who have a good education, what are the ones that actually do computer programming mm -hmm. you know it's a very small percent so right. i mean there's really very few industries now or very you know very few i mean you can be a doctor and you'll make a lot of money but you're not going to be making world decisions right it mm -hmm. pretty much is tech right. <laughs> like you said yeah. i mean there's one industry really it's tech i mean the top people all right now kind of came from that mm -hmm. um and yeah, I think it's a little bit scary just because they don't need a lot of people to do what they do. Like they're mm -hmm. big companies, but only big in terms of value and influence. In terms of employees, not very big. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think the decision is less and less people. Um, and I guess I'm kind of bearish on. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a little. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is going away, and I don't <laughs> think it's getting better. Yeah, I, I think technology is going to just push people farther and farther from the, the haves and the have nots um, because all these big companies have like the network effect where it's like, if you use it then and your friends use it, then it works better. So it's hard to compete if mm. you're not good, like as good. Um, right. So it's like the best makes $180 billion, Jeff Bezos, but then everybody else makes, you know, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, in general, I am just I am a little worried with the power of data because a slight advantage can multiply real quick. Mm -hmm. um, whereas previously, you can kind of just like move and then like your business is there, the other business is there. Right. Whereas now it's like DuckDuckGo isn't popular in New Hampshire, 
right? Google's yeah. popular everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Uh, I guess I don't really have a strong take on there. Just sort of worried about where it's going. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I think. I guess one side of it is, is, is there a way to more so democratize data? Mm. Is there a way to get the average individual more interested in data and facts and having a more probabilistic view of the world and how they make decisions? Is that, or is that just a losing battle? Mm. Like, is it, if we're going to go up against the Facebook algorithm, we're going to lose every time. Um, I, I think it is within my nature to hope that if we could get more people to be interested in these sorts of things and to resist the urge to be so mobilized by, by things like tribalism and emotion and storytelling that these companies tend to use against us because they know what works and they know how to incentivize us that if it became more common or just understood that that was, and granted this all comes down to opinion, but I think people right now are voting, not voting, but the, the story is being written right now by these tech companies. And clearly this is what they're using and whether or not you think that, being analytical or focusing on data and facts is important. It's, it's the weapon that's it is, being yeah. used against it's us. Reality. And unless there's some sort of a, you know, a broader weapon that's yet to be revealed to defend against it, um, which maybe there will be in time, but right now it seems like it's, it's the only game in town. And to be fair, it's not like I have any sort of a, particularly data-driven background i think i'm a generally analytical person but it's something i've even i feel very overwhelmed about as an individual as i try to navigate this media landscape and just try to figure out how to make decisions in my life in ways that make sense because and i don't know if you're familiar with the work of danny kahneman or uh anyone in that space but Without getting too much into it, a lot of his work points to how poorly we make decisions intuitively and how we have these ideas like, you know, go with your gut or, you know, we have these axioms that that we often live by, but that more often than not, we're just totally wrong. We misunderstand things. We make terrible decisions and we'd be better off, generally speaking, if we listened more to what the data speaks to or uh, allowed for exterior influence based on other data points and research to dictate more of our decisions than just what we feel intuitively, Um, which I think at the time was very revolutionary. And I think still, I think is very common within a certain section of the population. And I think it's kind of what I'm speaking to here that people in these spaces, they're like, of course, and but most people don't really feel that way or operate in that way and i think maybe when you have some exposure to these highly analytical environments where decisions are really being made and you realize how much it really does matter um and how little your feelings actually do uh and i'm not saying that these are things that should just be disregarded but 
I think all that to say, I'm hopeful that raising the overall public interest in at least trying to find common ground from a, a facts and data perspective and that being more so the gold standard in conversation and in debate and the war of ideas that's very much going on in our our media ecosystems right now as we're trying to solve these really complicated problems that i think at times we drift away from what is what is real and what we can measure and what the data really says about the problems that we're trying to solve because we are so motivated by our our emotions and our passions and we see terrible things happening in the world we just want to stop them or we we just want to solve these problems or we want to put these band-aids on but a lot of times when we actually study these things we realize that the problems aren't really thought what we thought they were um so i don't know do you play do you play any chess um, I, I've, I, I know chess I've, I've played, I mean, mm. I just haven't played in like the last year. Right. I, I've definitely played and I played in, in college a little bit. Mm. Do you, you do play poker. I feel like we've yes. discussed this. Yeah. I played okay. last week twice. Gotcha. <laughs> I love yeah. poker. Poker is um, my, my, my favorite. So yeah, I feel like, um, this will maybe help bring things back on solid ground for me as a, an analogy I've heard before, uh, or at least just kind of a using, a model for using poker versus chess as a framework or analog for life in that I, I enjoy playing chess. I've played a lot more chess than I have poker in my life, but in a way chess is actually not that helpful because as far as it uh, maps onto life, because it's a fixed game, it's a closed system. You, there is no, in theory, there's no risk involved. You, you know, you know, the knight moves this way, yeah, the rook yeah. moves this way. You understand if you're a, let's say a grandmaster, you, at any point in the game, you know, everything that can happen and you can operate and move as though that is true. That is not life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and in poker, as I'm sure you know, you can think probabilistically, you yeah. can play the numbers, and that's valuable. But at the end of the day, you're accepting a high degree of risk, oh, and you so could do everything right. It's so frustrating. And you could lose. Yeah. But the idea is if you stay data driven in time, if you're patient, things will work out in your favor. It's the patience that's hard. Okay, I, uh, I, I I got one for you on this. Let's 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 test your uh, let's test your data. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, <laughs> so there was a there was a study. Okay. Okay, and um, a a guy gave like a hundred people twenty dollars mm -hmm. and gave them a coin. A coin has a sixty percent chance of heads and a forty percent chance of tails. Mm -hmm. And he said, for thirty minutes, you can flip the coin. And you can bet however much you want each bet. You could bet $1, then $2, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And you have a 60% chance of heads and a 40% chance of tails. What do you think the optimal amount to bet is on that $20 to maximize the odds of getting $500? So you can bet um, like what percent, what percent mm -hmm. of that money should you bet each bet 
to maximize the chance you get to five hundred dollars. Oh, okay, gotcha. Like so, out of twenty, would you would you go all in on a sixty forty bet? Would you bet only one dollar? You know, would you bet? You say you can do this as many the, times as you want in thirty minutes. Oh, yeah. in thirty minutes. Because okay. otherwise, you do like one set, and you know you would get there eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But so basically, um, this is a probability question because it's it's like you want to bet enough where you get the reward, the reward for having the above fifty percent odds, mm-hmm. but you don't want to bet too much where you could go broke. Right. It's sort of the yeah. So what would you what would you? Uh, That's interesting. How much would you bet out of twenty? Or what? Percent? I'm sure there's a mathematical. There way is a, of there is an equation, this. but just curious, roughly what you uh, come up with. Uh, in 30 minutes. You can flip it a lot of times. You can flip a lot of times in 30 minutes. minutes. Mm-hmm. But you're trying to get to 500. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just going to say a dollar. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really maps onto it well because I don't think I'm going to have a better answer yeah, than yeah. that. But I think that's what my gut would say. It's probably far off. What, what what number did you? Oh, say? I said a dollar. Oh, a dollar. Okay, so so it's actually four dollars. Um, oh, okay. So ironically, you did lower. Everybody else I've asked has said higher number than four, uh, okay. because they get over, uh, they get intrigued by the sixty forty. Mm-hmm. So the, the the point of that was just that um, people like like poker, they will they will over when they see good odds or something they'll over bet, mm-hmm. and that's in the stock market. You see people will think they got a good stock, they'll put all their money in and then they'll lose. Mm-hmm. As in, so as in people, like you said, with data is extremely important because people use it extremely wrong. Mm-hmm. You can be extremely smart and somehow figure out that something has a 60% chance of happening. Mm-hmm. But if you bet the wrong amount of money, you still lose. Right. So that's why like you're like, like tech is so hard to beat because even if you have all parts of equation, they'll beat you somewhere else just because they know exactly the odds of doing something mm-hmm. or the exact something like that. Uh, I just think it's an interesting uh, question, just because um, people. It's very difficult to to understand like how to deal with risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but continue with your yeah. your your, your, no, fun, no, your fun I, mean, I, I appreciate that yeah. because it's. I think it illuminates the point quite well, and I, intuitively, I was quite wrong, and. As I just kind of it's difficult. To. It's very intuitively. One, if you I, just, I might have said one. I don't. I don't I, unfortunately, right. I already know, so it's hard to say what <laughs> yeah. I would have said. But. If you move through life largely based on your intuitions, which most people do, and I've mostly done up to this point in my life, and it's I've done okay because of that. Yeah. I think maybe some people just get luckier than others, of course, and anybody can win a good hand, of course. Yeah, you yeah. know, anybody and people often when all it takes is one good hand, right? One big win and you tell yourself you're good at poker for the rest of your life. You you continue to dig yourself a hole just because that one time you actually got lucky and you didn't even probably necessarily play the hand correctly, Um, which is another facet of this that I think is incredibly interesting is that we don't treat our wins and our losses the same. Mm -hmm. And so when someone wins, they don't analyze it. It's just a win. Yeah. I'm just good. That's true. I'm a good player. <laughs> I did it right. Even though what they did was probably far from optimal. Yeah. How they handled the situation. And sure, when they lose, it's like, oh, fuck. What are we? Let's go back to the drawing board. They lose all their money. They they blow out. And you know now they're depressed and they're poor. And so now they have to reflect. 
But when you win, you generally attribute it to your own skill. And that's how life works as well. Generally that when, you know, you, you, you get that promotion you've been waiting on or you, that's so true. Something falls into your lap and you're just like, I just did all the right stuff. Even though you, you might've been just a small margin away from not getting it, or you might've, you might've been able to negotiate a much better salary or you might've been yeah, able yeah, to, yeah. there might've been so much left on the table that you didn't realize, but you just chalk it off as a win. You move on. And I mean, to be fair, the best poker players don't do that. Um, yeah. And that's why I think it is such a helpful analog for life because uh, it's, we, we just, it's so easy to get caught in our successes and always attributing that to the wrong thing and not analyzing things when they are good because we're just like, Hey, it's good. I don't want to yeah. mess with success. That's another, you know, a common saying that in a lot of ways is unhelpful. Like yeah. you, you, you should still be looking at <laughs> yeah, what's, yeah. Yeah, what's going especially right. with poker. Right. Cause like you said, I mean, you're playing the odds, so mm-hmm. you could be winning for no good reason out of luck. Right. So if you only analyze the losses, you're you're never going to get better because you're not going to realize what time was winning mm-hmm. luck and, and losing. Right. Because sometimes you lose based off luck, so you have to see them mm-hmm. together. Equally. Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, it's another thing that it maps into a lot of different spaces, and I think it. I guess my whole point is that it maps onto life as a as a whole, but. In the medical field, they do this, uh, what is the name of it? It's essentially this kind of debriefing that they do when someone dies and they Mm. shouldn't have, where there's a surgery and in theory, things should have gone right. It's relatively routine or maybe it's high risk, but still they die. And there's this incredibly intensive process where they analyze what potentially went wrong, which of course, this makes sense yeah. and is valuable, but you find that through this system, a lot of doctors avoid taking risks because it's so intensive mm. and they feel so bad and so much of a spotlight is put on them when they take a risk during a surgery, during a procedure. Yeah. They do what probably needs ah, to be done, yeah, yeah. but because the the cost is so high a failure and it's so highlighted when they do something wrong, even if it wasn't wrong, it's just that you lost the hand. Yeah. You, you played it right, but you just lost the hand. Yeah. There was nothing you could have done about it. You didn't know what was going to happen. You never know what the other person has. And, but they don't do that when, you know, it something miraculously goes well or when the doctor did something innovative or creative to save someone's yeah. life. They don't sit down for two hours or for however long it takes. I'm not in the medical field, so I'm not really speaking to this with any true experience, but you don't analyze the wins. And so it the incentive structure, once again, is wrong. And so you find doctors generally are are pushed to not take risks and not try to save someone's life in a way that might be necessary. Just like in other spaces in life, we're generally taught to be somewhat risk averse because we feel like we only are highlighted when we fail. And so in a lot of competitive environments or environments of all sorts, you find people just kind of take this path of least resistance because you're like, I don't, I don't want to get called out. I don't want to be, I don't want a spotlight yeah. on me because I, I took a risk or I did something wrong, even though often the risk is what's necessary. The risk is the best move in the long term. 
it's it's just difficult and that is i guess in summary why i feel like it's it's a very helpful game to play and i guess i don't need to tell it, you no, that because you enjoy I, it but it's i love the analogy it's i think it's something to bring it full circle that could help individuals get into the practice of thinking in these terms and analyzing risk and being comfortable with risk and saying hey this is there's a 63% chance that I lose this hand. Not that you can yeah, just pull that yeah, off the top yeah. of your head, but something in those terms that there's, there's a decent chance I lose here, but it's still, this is a reasonable amount of money to put on this. If I want to win this game yeah. in, in the long term, I can't just sit on what I've got. Can't just keep paying the blinds and folding every yeah, hand. Yeah, you yeah. know, that's just, that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, and in the long term. I think the best players come out on top and that's why it's a game of skill and not just luck. Yeah. And it's not like the people who are on the tour are just yeah, lucky not, uh, people yeah, yeah. and they certainly have lost plenty of money before, but ultimately they're steadfast and they stick with the probabilities. And of course, I guess the other facet to this that I haven't touched on is that it's not just about quantitative data. It's also qualitative. Yeah. And I feel like that gets lost a lot because we think about data and we're just like, oh, it's it's numbers. But of course, in poker, it's not just the numbers of the game. It's also the other people that are in the game with you and this observational data and, and a lot more goes under the umbrella of data than I think people often think about. And it's not just about the the more traditional side of it. It's also taking in the whole perspective, taking in the whole scene and accounting for everything when you make decisions as much as you can. So not that I think people playing more poker is going to like solve the world's yeah. problems or anything, but I was trying to just use that as an example of something that if people had a little more practice thinking in these terms, that maybe they would feel a little bit more empowered or capable in these situations where they might be more inclined to throw up their hands and just be like, okay, these people behind closed doors who, who have all this information on me or who, who have all this computing power that I don't, what am I going to do? Like, how can I, yeah. how can I still make good decisions or should I just leave it to them? Like, should I just be like, Hey, Facebook, whatever you think, man, you know me yeah, yeah. better than I know myself. So I'll just go with whatever YouTube suggests next because their data is better than my data, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and maybe, maybe that's true. I no, don't know. I, but... I, I like what you're saying. I, I think, yeah, I, I, especially with the poker, it, it's good. Cause I like it. Cause you, you can, you also see how people react with wins and losses, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so even like just outside of data, just like people act so different when they're winning and versus when they're losing. And right. I think it's such a good way to see how you're going to react when bad things happen, mm -hmm. not your fault or your fault, right? Both things, right? You can lose a hand because you played it perfectly and still lost mm -hmm. or, you know, the same way with, with the upside. So it can kind of be a metaphor for life. Like if you lost your job, like it, I think it just gives you a good framework for all of that. And then with the data side, that, that mathematical equation I just told you mm -hmm. came from a gambler. And now it's used for like all up, like there's actually an equation of what's the probability of winning? How much should you bet? Mm -hmm. And that came from gambling. Again, we, I'm not promoting gambling too much because it's, it's, 
it's not a good thing to do. You lose money in the long run, bet on stocks. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it, yeah, I think it definitely teaches you how to kind of view risk. I think a lot of people are so scared of risk. It's like people want to know they'll get something. Mm. Right. So it's like, I feel bad about myself in college. I took classes, uh, several classes. Cause I thought I would get an A in them. I should have taken physics. Why didn't I take physics? Mm. Cause I'm afraid of the risk that I won't get a good grade, <laughs> yeah. but the upside is clear. It's just not written. You know, it's, mm. I see a lower, it's not, but I don't think how will I be able to use this the rest of my life? I, I think so much of life is people just not wanting to take the risk of failure when in reality, even if they fail, it's like usually okay. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, then it's better. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I find that I'm, I'm, I mean, I would say probably you based off you say $1 bet that um, it can be difficult to, to really go for, it's like, for example, like if oh, I told yeah. you, you had um, uh, a dice, one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Okay. If it's a three, you lose. If it's a one and two, you win. Mm-hmm. So two thirds chance of winning. Yeah. And you have an equal chance of winning money and losing money. Uh, so like the, you know, the, the, the one side uh, you lose and the other two you win. How much money would you bet? And if you win, you get it. If you lose, you have to pay it. Hmm. <laughs> so There's no two- caps or anything. It's nope, just- no caps. And, yeah, odds. it's interesting, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's like, again, like risk of work is all these successful tech billionaires, they would all do like 90% of their net worth, right? They're crazy, right. Um, which seems crazy, but especially when you're young, you should take those risks mm-hmm. if you can. If you don't have the kids, basically, if you don't have kids yet, go for it. Mm-hmm. Or if you're not paying for somebody in your family or, or something. Right. Um, because you almost definitely won't regret it. I mean, everybody, you know, there's the quotes, right? When people on their deathbed, pretty much nobody's like, I regret going for it and failing. They mm-hmm. usually say, I regret not trying it right. or not doing it. It's yeah. almost always that, right? It's like, so I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I I see the argument there and I think maybe the, uh, my more, but you have to know the risk from poker, right? If you take the risk badly, mm-hmm. you lose everything in a stupid way. You right. have to know how to take the risk. And mm-hmm. that is yeah, also very important for sure. <laughs> yeah. I guess I was just going to say like my, I guess, small C mm-hmm. conservative impulse. So <laughs> okay. apolitical maybe drives me to ask, okay, but sure, this is a hypothetical. It's kind of a closed system. But at the same time, what is the what's the opportunity cost there? Where if I feel like I could do something better with the money, it's mm. not like this is my only opportunity to take risk. And I get yeah, that yeah. Two, a, a two out of three chance that's hard to come by. But if I feel like my money is better spent in another more uh, a, a safer risk that might have a similar reward profile. That might be the way that I would think about it and why I wouldn't put as much money behind it. Maybe as some others, and maybe that's the wrong way of thinking well, about I, it. I, I guess but, so it, it, that was a, a, but what, but what about more like you're in a safe job for a, for like Walmart, like you're not going to like a management job. You're mm-hmm. not going to lose it during a recession, but you can join this hot tech startup. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get paid half your oh, salary in equity. Yeah. I'm not saying you should do that always. I do that. But, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I've I, done that basically. I think, 
I think a lot of the time the people that do do that shouldn't, and a lot of people who don't should. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like a lot of people I know who take risks should not be taking risks. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I know who don't could or should. Mm-hmm. So th- there's this thing in Vanguard, right? So Vanguard, uh, luckily for us, publishes their um, account holdings. So not at an individual level, but at an aggregate. Mm-hmm. And like 30% of the holdings are cash. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are they in cash? Like, it's it's their investment account. It's not their, it's not their, um, there's like, what do they call Savings fund or um, when you, like, if you're afraid you'll lose your job, you have a fund. Um, oh, okay. Like yeah. three to six months, that thing. Yeah. It's not that. This is in their investment account and they just leave cash because they're afraid of investing it. And in the long run, it tends to be um, very bad for their returns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think correct risk, but but I should emphasize correct risk because the GameStop, for example, was not correct risk. <laughs> they, yeah. they, the upside was 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 extremely risky and it was not a, a, the, the 50 50 it was below 50 chance of winning that so mm-hmm. you should be taking the risk when you have the better odds or the better situation um i just think you yeah. suck at analyzing I mean, oh, why yeah. do people gamble like not not poker but like legit like blackjack i mean you know you're supposed to lose money mm-hmm. and you do it i mean it might it's be fun. fun but some people <laughs> bet a lot right mm. some people especially sports betting i mean what are the you don't know better than vegas People just yeah, don't I mean, analyze the risk. Wins. Yeah, even in poker. In poker, at, in a in a setting like that, yeah. In a way, they always do. It's it's a little bit more abstract. I feel like with poker, and a lot but of you're, you're right. is, right, is though. competitive against other individuals. So it's a little more. Uh, there's a little bit more room, I guess, for individuals to actually come out on top. But as far as the the whole racket. The house always wins. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> so even if that's like a way to get you in the door, but you might, you know, we, we might take some of your money over here, and you might win at the hold'em table, but yeah. in in the end, we'll we'll get it back from you in some way or from enough people that it works out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think on the other side of that, that is why gambling is attractive, yeah. because some people. I think especially men for whatever that's worth are less risk averse by nature. And I hope that's not a controversial well, you thing said to men say. Men are less risk. Oh, less risk averse. Less yeah. risk averse. Risk-seek, so men are risk seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I could have just said Degenerate that, yeah. gambler. You think, <laughs> you think a guy betting on like, you know, stayed up till 3 right. a.m. drinking or something. Because I think. Yeah, well, that is, I wonder why that evolutionarily is. Evolutionarily speaking, yeah, it was some, necessary yeah. that. Uh, males generally had to live a riskier lifestyle to be competitive in whatever landscape they were in, to to attract mates, to hunt, to do whatever they needed to do. It was obviously commonplace and still is within the animal kingdom that at any time you could just be challenged by another male and that could just be yeah, it. Yeah. You know, you're, everything is high stakes. And so it's I think a little bit more ingrained that risk is just a part of life and that life is supposed to be dangerous. And since it generally isn't these days, it's actually quite safe and stable. People have that uh, kind yeah, of itch the, the, uh, to, yeah, yeah. to have a little bit of risk, to put put it all on black and you know just have their 50-50 shot at doubling their money or whatever. And a lot of people just find that 
attractive and not necessarily a reasonable way, but a, there's a certain edge to it. There's a certain thrill that, that is attractive, not necessarily to me, as you might imagine from how I've answered these <laughs> yeah, questions, yeah. but I do, to be fair, I enjoy, I'm not necessarily a thrill seeker, but things that by the data are safe. As long as that's the case, I'm game. Like skydiving. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bungee jumping, even things like roller coasters, whatever it is, things that feel unsafe. So you get that kind of, yeah. you, you get that sort I, of I parasympathetic that. response, that that thrill, but you know, technically speaking, this is perfectly safe. It's not... Uh, I don't know. It's not eating McDonald's every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is ironically more dangerous probably. It's something that thousands of people do every day and the incredibly large percentage of them are fine. So I'm not necessarily totally averse to those sort of things. And I think I've definitely taken some calculated risks in my life. And I think I'm more inclined to take the sort of, I'm more inclined to bet on myself and Hopefully that doesn't come off as arrogance, but I think situations where I feel like I have more agency, where it's like, as you were kind of saying, okay, you're going to go work for this startup yeah, where yeah, yeah. It, most of them fail and this one might too, but the ceiling is there. But at least I can say I gave it my all and I, I did everything I could to push it forward. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out as opposed to a flip of a coin or a roll of a dice yeah, where probabilistically yeah. you could argue it's the same, right? You could say there's a 66% chance that this startup I want to join will fail. Yeah. And I intuitively and maybe wrongly would convince myself that it's a safer bet because I have some uh, sort of but, belief but in myself. But that's how you succeed ironically is you have to, yeah. I mean, ironically you have to think that's, that it is the better bet, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of works. Yeah, it, it can it, work in reverse <laughs> too. You have to be illogical to think to bet on yourself sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, there's this funny thing where it's like valedictorians do well, but they're never billionaires mm -hmm. because they always take the safer route, where it's like the like the really smart kids, but not the valedictorians. Mm -hmm. So the ones that are have more like an appetite for risk, they're the ones that become the billionaires because they drop out of Harvard to be a you know create right. company. They're not being a surgeon which makes a lot of money but they're not creating google right mm -hmm. you know so it, there right. is some kind of interesting uh differences there yeah and i mean i think most people would be uh would be totally happy to to be a surgeon yeah that's so, true yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah i'm not saying it's, it's, it's i'm not relative, saying it's yeah, yeah. For, for sure but obviously if you want to shoot for the stars in that sense you you, you gotta yeah like to clarify said, i mean i was making fun of you for the dollar but i i tend to be not that good about taking risk i i, I think um it, it's it's difficult because unfortunately the way humans are designed at least for a lot of people mm. the failure feels bad oh yeah but 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 the, but ironically once you're done with it like it's usually okay like it's just in the moment like you're so scared of the failure but then you have the failure and you're like oh like mm. it's okay I, you know people are fa so again include myself uh just afraid of the of, of not doing well when, mm -hmm. when most people wouldn't care. Most people would, would uh, uh, judge you more for not trying it than actually just right. trying it and failing. 
Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. And I think it's, it's one of those things where we often, I don't know, I guess for me, it's often about, it is sometimes about letting others down. Mm. And not that that is a good motivator per se. Ah, it's a good one though. But (laughs) (laughs) it works. It certainly has worked for me. Yeah, it might be good for your health, but it's good for effectiveness. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's effective to an end. And not even, I mean, I guess that's one way of framing it. I think I always want to be better for those around me. I think I always want to to prove those who have invested in me and who believe in me right. I do feel an obligation to do that because I do feel like I've been very lucky in a lot of ways. And is that, is in, that family or, or like wife? Largely, yes. Um, Both? Some friends, Both I guess friends. I would friends say too. as well. But um, I guess professionally in some senses as well. Right. You know, I think in small ways and lots of spaces, but more so family than than anything else. But also just different relationships growing up. I, I knew some very generous people, mm. some people that believed in me. I A lot of what I did at a young age was basically due to the generosity of others, the opportunities I was given. We didn't have a lot growing up, but I was able to move through life in a similar capacity to a lot of people that did. Mm. And that wasn't, I was just kind of lucky in that sense that, there were some opportunities there for me. There was some funding there for me to do some things that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Um, that's just one example, I guess. No, that's but no. I, I do feel an obligation to prove those people right for investing in me. But at the same time, it shouldn't necessarily be about that. And they wouldn't the want the you day. to think that either. They, of course they would. No, that's not why they did it. They didn't do it to have me in their pocket for the rest of their lives. Um, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of it, at least on average, does come from this sense that, or even this fear of what, what we will think of ourselves, what will become of us if we do fail. You know, <laughs> what, Damn, okay. what does it say about you as an individual if you fail, even if to stick to the theme we're just thinking about things probabilistically and you made the right choice. Yeah. You played, yeah, yeah. you bet the right amount. You were totally reasonable about it, but you just lost. It's very hard to have that sense of detachment. It's very hard yeah, to say, is. I did this right. <laughs> yeah. And I still lost. And a lot of people would push back on that. Right. A lot of people would say, no, if you didn't win, if you didn't get the outcome, it was your fault. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you usually tell yourself that, right? Right. And we, the worst is sometimes people, again, including myself, if if they succeed, it's because they were supposed to. Right. And if they fail, it's because they didn't do mm-hmm. a good enough job. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I think that's, I think it's an elegant way of bringing this all full circle as far as the nature of this project that a lot of why I started this is to kind of get to hone in on that aspect of life and how we think about ourselves that we often are so attached to the outcomes. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily about the process or the reasoning behind what we did. 
which in theory is most important. And that is what at the end of the day, we should be able to rest our heads on and say, my process was good. The outcome, it didn't work out, but the process is good. The process is repeatable and it will serve me well in the future. But we often get so tied to the outcomes and something unlucky happens or unfortunate happens. And we feel like that defines us. We feel like that becomes a part of our identity, just as it does on the other side where someone has a great break and now you're this exceptional person. You're, you're above all these other people. Yeah. These people are lazy. These people, <laughs> these people made bad decisions. When you don't know that's true, but you see your outcomes, you see the yields of your labor and you say, I'm clearly doing something right. And it's so easy to attach ourselves to what happens in that sense, even though a lot of it is out of our control. I'm not trying to say that none of it is, but I'm just saying if we're sticking with poker as an analog for life, it's not a safe game. Mm -hmm. There is risk. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. And sometimes you just get a really shitty fucking hand over and over again, an unwinnable hand. And that is also to bring it around to the whole wealth inequality thing, the, the inequality of opportunity. Some people are just getting these shitty hands over and over again. And there's only so much you can do with a hand that shitty. Unless, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I mean, you risk it all. Yeah. And, but yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I think we too often attach ourselves to lots of things that are outside. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm of who we really are and what we really can control. And whether that be our thoughts or our emotions or our feelings or the outcomes that are the results of our actions, that is often how we build our identities. That is how we think about ourselves. And that is also how others tend to think about us as well. And that of course influences how we think about ourselves, but maybe just a little bit more distance from that. And being able to look at things objectively and say, man, I just got lucky there or I just got unlucky. And um, not to make an argument for for apathy or emotional distance to an extreme extent, but I think it's something that I tend to struggle with, but I believe I've begun to do a better job with in the past few years of my life and it's has certainly helped me get through some incredibly challenging things that when you look at them for what they really are it's very hard to explain it's very hard to justify it say that it's fair to say that it's anyone's fault and to search for answers in that sense um but a certain degree of acceptance and an ability to step back and just say i think we did all we could here and that's hard <laughs> that's good good for you that is that is, that is I mean, i think you that's right i think you came up with the right it's just yeah i think most people do not succeed in that uh mm-hmm. that's good i know my my, my my dad always says stuff like that he has like some lines where he says like there's no like wrong decision mm-hmm. because no matter what happens you learn from it and right. it's like so hard to tell yourself that when you know you did something stupid. Right. But if you have the mentality, yeah, where we're just where you're focusing on the process or mm-hmm. or you're just not 
beating yourself down for these failures, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's probably better. Mm. It's, yeah. And you just feel better about yourself too. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not, yeah, putting your self-worth into these things that mm-hmm. are, you know, in your control or not in your yeah. control. Definitely. Yeah, I guess to uh, just on that note, to put you on the spot a mm-hmm. little bit. Okay, hit me. Biggest failure. Ooh, okay. Wow, okay. Biggest failure. Hmm. And to clarify that slightly, the thing that you felt the worst about. So whether or not you define it as your ultimate biggest failure, I don't know. But the thing that you maybe, as we were kind of just speaking to, put yourself on the hook up for the most or that you feel like was most formative to you in that sense hmm that's that's interesting um so i haven't actually failed it yet but i'll, I'll go with the cfa mm. the third the the level the, t- the test i just took okay okay so because this hurts still so this this will be a better uh yeah. example than the other one which Again, like I said, I sort of fixed. So it's 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 like an interview question almost, where you're like, "Oh, I failed, mm-hmm. and now I'm better," you know. Yeah. Uh, but with the with the exam, so I started studying. Actually, I said June first. I actually started studying January. No, I started studying October of the previous year. Mm. Okay, because the exam was going to be in in uh, June. So oh, I passed okay. actually in November, and I studied like two hours a day, mm-hmm. and then in March, COVID. And the exam was canceled. Mm-hmm. So I was devastated because I had studied so much. Right. And my friends who were also taking the exam had slacked off mm-hmm. and they had sort of benefited because it was canceled. So they didn't get screwed. Whereas mm-hmm. I had studied early. I studied harder. And then I restarted in June again before other people. Mm-hmm. So I put in like realistically for the third exam, like five, 600 hours. Mm-hmm. Supposed to put in 300. And then I get to this exam mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can't do the first question. And I just like, I, I, I just a, a wall of just fear and anger and sadness hits me. Like, I'm just like, mm-hmm. how the fuck can you not do this? Mm-hmm. When you studied so hard for so long, you are just stupid. Because I, I studied less than these other people, uh, more than double these other people, mm-hmm. and they're doing better than me. So by definition, I'm stupid. And I, I still mm-hmm. haven't really been able to fix that for myself because I'm like, I worked harder and I did worse. Mm-hmm. By definition, right. that means you're... I, I, so I haven't really convinced myself that that's not the fact. Mm-hmm. So I guess that one, I, like yeah. you said, does it still hurt? <laughs> it still hurts just because I was like, I studied so hard and I couldn't adjust to the change in question. Mm-hmm. And then when I realized I couldn't, it kind of made me more scared and it was just... And because you have one day, you know, you start thinking about your life. Oh my God, I spent all this time right. and I have to wait another six months to take this exam. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not positive I failed, but the first part of the exam was so just crippling, crippling, mm-hmm. just the pain and just the fear. It was right. brutal. <laughs> it was brutal. Yeah. I mean, maybe some of it is that, not that this is fundamentally true, but that maybe in a way because you, did put so much behind it that yeah. there was more pressure that they felt like there was more at stake that in the moment it actually produced more of a state of anxiety and, and yeah. stress because you, you just felt like the stakes were so high and that 
not to say that you should have studied less, but maybe if you had in that moment, it wouldn't have hit you so hard. It's probably true. And that's no, I mean, I, I don't know if yeah. there's anything to be learned there. It's probably, it's probably not true that you should have studied less, but I'm sure there's something to be learned there about how, how you might, what sort of preparation might better suit you in the future. You know what I'm saying? That maybe it's not just about time put in. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Maybe it's about managing expectations to some extent. Um, yeah. On the other hand though, I am sort of glad because I think because a lot of the time I was saying previously, I don't think I've really gone for it, mm -hmm. that it is something to go for it and mm -hmm. fail. Right. Because then it's like, you know, you all know that with like sports, you play with somebody and they're like, oh, I didn't try my hardest. But if mm -hmm. you actually try your hardest and you still fail, then mm -hmm. you have nothing in your head to convince right. yourself that you could have done it. Because mm -hmm. there's nothing, I don't, if I th think, I would have obviously studied some things differently because I didn't get them right. Sure. But my process, I don't hate my process. Mm -hmm. I had a consistent process. I went over the, you know, and then I, I liked my process. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just result. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of that thing. Like, can you accept that your process was good? Again, there's some things I could have done differently, but in general, the process was close to mm -hmm. what I would have wanted. Um, and it's just like, if you do something hard, guess what? You're not going to always get it. Right. Um, and it just, sometimes your best isn't good enough. Yeah. Which, 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 which people <laughs> which don't want to say, it's hard to right? say you that. don't want to say nobody wants to. Yeah. You, you know, it's, you know, rich people and successful people always talk about how they failed. Right. Mm -hmm. Poor people don't say that or, or average people don't say that. You only feel comfortable saying that after you've succeeded mm -hmm. to kind of be like, oh, it doesn't matter. Clearly, I'm still good. Right. I mean, but it. if you haven't done it and you just tried and you failed. Uh, again, I'm sort of proud of myself for for putting myself in a situation where I could even feel that failure. Mm -hmm. um, my whole family's risk averse. So it's not out of the the, the characteristics. Um, but I I'm I'm just glad I did that. I, mm -hmm. I, I, well, I'm not glad about the all that stuff, but I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I put myself in a situation in something that was difficult enough, where there was a good chance that my best would not be enough. Mm -hmm. Because most of life for me, especially college, most classes, if you study hard enough, you'll get it. Mm -hmm. Like it's not you can go to the office hours, all this stuff. CFA is one of those things where you can study hard enough and you might fail. Mm -hmm. You'll probably pass eventually. Cause it's not hard enough where like you literally just like can't get it, mm -hmm. but it is hard enough where like it can really hurt right. you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, I hope you fail. No, no. <laughs> no the life um, experience, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, on, on that note, we're definitely, we've been running for a long time here. Uh, so I do want to jump to one thing okay. before we wrap up. Best financial advice you've ever received oh this is easy actually mm -hmm. tax yourself okay um so the easiest the easiest way yeah so i would say the best way um to succeed financially is to tax yourself so the government takes money out of your paycheck so you should take money out of your paycheck have money directly transferred to your investment account from your paycheck if possible if mm -hmm. not directly from your bank account at the same time it comes into your checking account mm -hmm. you cannot spend what you do not have so tax yourself and that is the 
it has so many positive benefits. Number one, people think they're saving, but once they hit a certain number, they probably won't save the same amount every month. Mm-hmm. So if if it's consciously taken out out of your paycheck, um, it's it first of all it takes gets rid of stress because you don't have to think, am I saving enough? You are. You know you are. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have to think about that. Right. And then, um, yeah. Well, actually, that's really just the main is you you just don't have to feel the stress that it's that it's going. It's consistent, and the best thing is then the money you have you can spend without feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. If something is expensive and it's not worth it, doesn't matter. You already saved, so there's no point of not buying. Like you can buy buy something stupid if you have the money in your account, you can spend it, and mm-hmm. you don't have to think, do I have money for this? Because right. you do, you know, you do, because the money that you don't that that you need is gone. So this money you can do whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. So it gets rid of a huge amount of stress, and it increases the likelihood you will save by a large amount. Mm-hmm. So that would be by far, I would say, what a lot of people should do. Um, and I've tried to convince a lot of my friends to do, um, because some of you put a thousand dollars in their Robinhood account, mm-hmm. but that's not how nobody gets rich off doing that. You have to put money away consistently. Right. And it's kind of hard to do that actually, unless it's automatic. So I would say it's, it's it a simple, it's a simple <laughs> thing to do, but I would say it's probably the easiest that will have the largest effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yourself. definitely. I mean, I think there's a lot. There's a lot that could be unpacked there, and I think I'll maybe just keep it brief and say I certainly agree that in that space and in essentially any other space in life, as much as you can automate these sometimes difficult things, that if you can just add some automaticity that yeah. you can be hands Know off. the data, right? We said you, this. Right. You don't have to consciously make this decision over and over again. And I even struggle with it myself because I, in a way, do this, but I don't have it set up in the simplest way. I think I have a decent amount of discipline in this sense, so it works I out. I bet you do. But again, but, you don't even have to get stressed about it if right, you do it automatically. I do you technically think, have like, to oh, do sorry. it yeah. every two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every two weeks, there's a moment where I'm like, hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a moment where I'm making that decision. There's a moment where I say, like, could, and you can come up do with I reasons need this for something right? else. Yeah, you that's could, the problem. Each having to have the discipline every two weeks to say, no, this money's just going away. That's difficult. And it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that in life that if you just take advantage of technology and automate them, your life can be a lot easier. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we'll leave the audience with that. Uh, but yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on. This is this yeah. has been fun. It was awesome. Yeah, Thanks for we'll, having me on. We'll have to do it again and next sure. time the, the world goes to shit. Yeah, I'll see you uh, next week. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, what's a what's a good example? I don't know. When COVID on- COVID <laughs> ten months ago. <laughs> yeah, <I was laughs> Something just like say that. Like uh OnStar becomes a Fortune five hundred Fortune five hundred yeah, company yeah, for or sure. something. Um But yeah, anywho, we'll get out of here. But uh, yeah, thanks all you out there for joining and we'll see you next time. Yeah.